Hello, I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiasts Podcast. Two Enthusiasts Podcast. The busiest podcast in the motorcycle industry. Maybe. No, I think so for sure. All right, really? I mean, it feels like it. Yeah, we're busy. That that's my excuse for why we we haven't had a show out like every week on like the regular. Yeah. Because we're just so damn busy. This is true. Just, just busy little bees. Yeah, just we're buzz, buzz, buzz. We are out and about. Whether you're uh, gallivanting in uh, far off lands or I'm gallivanting all over the U.S. Right. I guess they're far off. Everything's relative. Everything's relative. Uh, I don't want this show to be like a complete, what have we been doing, Quentin? But we've been doing a lot of really cool (laughs) things. So I think it's going to end up that way. Yeah, for sure. Before we do that and we get into the jams, let's do a little news. Okay, let's do it. Well, first, tell me why... Why do I have a Pirelli hat? Oh, I was going to say that for a, for a later segment of the show, but... but Okay, we can... if we can lead, we'll lead in that. We'll bring it back to the Pirelli hat. Okay. 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 So so we should I should let the listeners know, Quentin came into my living room and, and he sits on my couch when we record, and I had the Pirelli hat sitting where he sits on the couch as a special present, but we'll get to, we'll get to why in a minute. Okay. All right. All right. And I'm so curious. I'm like, straight up. This is the first thing I'm going to ask. No, I'm just but teasing I, it. It's, okay. it's like an M. Night Shyamalan movie. We're just going to tease it at the beginning, and then two-thirds okay. of the way through, it's all going to make sense, and there's okay. a cameo in there somewhere. All right, right. Um, I see Pirelli people. I see Pirelli. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Actually, that's, kinda, that's good. That's gonna, we'll come back to that. Okay. So I, I feel like we can't start the show without talking about a certain American brand and a certain trade war and the certain shenanigans yeah, that have ensued. America, for sure. So much going on. Uh-huh. So much going on this week. I'm having I'm kind of having like a geek out like international trade moment. Yeah. I don't have like it's a lot right of people. Up your alley. It's I know. like the Jensen Alley. It's like right off of Beeler Boulevard, Jensen Alley. <laughs> right down Jensen Lane. <laughs> Jensen Junction? It's a dark alley. <laughs> There's not a lot of people. <laughs> it's slow to gentrify. <laughs> Rent's very affordable. <laughs> All right. So what do you what do you make of this? I'm I of course I'm super stoked that Harley's just like, screw you. Like we're gonna do this thing. But I also kind of am like, it's a little spurious, right? You know, reading between the lines, like let's let's backtrack just a little bit when Trump took office and the Harley Davidson leadership came down to Washington. There was that whole thing of like, he was going to go to Milwaukee and visit them. And then they ended up coming to Washington DC and there's was a little bit of a hubbub and there's a little bit of meet and greet. And there's a photo op with, with Trump and the Harley. I don't even remember this. But it's early days. Enough. It's very early days of the presidency. And it kind of came off like, like Harley and Davidson and Trump were, were in it together. Like these were allies. And I think mm-hmm. that's kind of how it was pitched to the media. Yeah. But I really don't think that's the case. I really think that there's more of a contentious relationship between the U.S. presidency right now and the Harley-Davidson business unit in Milwaukee. And I and I view everything that's happened a little bit in that framework. I'm not saying that's the why. Yeah. I just don't think for all the pro-business, you know, make America great again, bring the jobs back, you know, America first stuff that Trump was selling – I don't think any of that really benefited Harley. And I think Harley was kind of burned on that. And I think that's kind of what gets us to where we are today, where we see, well, first we see the U S imposing tariffs on aluminum and steel metals. Yeah. uh, Especially from Europe, Europe putting a retaliatory, especially from Europe. Or are we just saying we put it on Europe? 
It's not Asia. We put it on a bunch of people and then started making kind of deals on who would get out of it. So uh-huh. the NAFTA countries kind of got a buy after making some other concessions. He was basically using that as a wedge to get other things. And NAFTA is North American, though. Right. So, so that's Canada, Mexico. What the heck? So Coda, Coda Kitty. Coda Kitty just jumped up on me. All right. Whatever. She missed you. You've been gone for so long. Yeah. And she thought that pearly hat was hers. No, and now yeah. she's like, okay. No, I gotta she's get, just I gotta gonna, get in the lap. She's just gonna take my lap, and boy, she is heavy. She's. I think I need to wear. I think. I think. I think she gained weight on her diet. <laughs> so. All right. I'm not good at that. Oh my god. <laughs> what a beast. Okay. Right. Sorry. Sorry to it's interrupt. Good radio going on. Yeah. So. So, we impose these tariffs on, on these metals. Some countries get exemptions. Some don't. Europe, the European Union, being in the camp of that, did not. In retaliatory effect to that, Europe is like, fine, we're going to put tariffs on Lee on jeans, on American motorcycles, on oranges. And you start looking at the list of things that they're putting tariffs on and what districts those affects. It's Paul Ryan's district. It's is Nancy it really Pelosi's district. It's Chuck Schumer's district. It's I thought Schumer was a um they're going after all the leadership because they want uh, they want to create this is how this uh, is how okay. trade wars work like people think it's it's tit for tat and it's really not it's it's oranges and i was gonna say like oranges and apples or something like that but it, that would be like two commodities that actually kind of are similar in trade war disputes but it's a very you you go after people's strengths and you go after their points of pain so yeah. When you look at what the European Union is targeting, it's going after swing states. It's going after districts huh. of the higher up leadership. And Florida, I heard, I'd heard it with Florida, Milwaukee Wisconsin, and Ryan. Two, I got it with I didn't realize it was all of the things because I wasn't paying. Of course, I'm just normal average person that doesn't really pay attention to this type of stuff deeply, so I'm just thinking about the Harley thing. Right. I didn't see the other stuff. I always thought maybe it was just very I would assume it would be stuff that would hit hardest as far as how much money would be lost, but I see more that it's a little bit more nuanced. No, they're very, they're very clever. And this is how, this is how smart trade wars are fought where they look at states where, you know, what states are going to be up for election or where areas were, were swing states, what areas are going to be close, what, what areas had changing demographics where putting a hurt on those areas and Wisconsin's a great one. Milwaukee's a great one because not only is it a swing state now, but it's also Paul Ryan's home, home state. Yeah. So you're putting, you're going to two for one after, out of, taxi motorcycles which is really going to affect only harley davidson not so much indian slash polaris yeah it's really a harley davidson tariff yeah so because they're not selling anywhere yeah, near india just doesn't sell that many bikes abroad whereas um europe is 16 percent of harley davidson's total volume and i think it's that's significant 40 percent of their international volume so it's a good ch- and and to be to be really clear it's also one of the few places where harley davidson's growing Huh. They're not growing domestically, so it's a point of pain to to say like, "Hey, we're gonna you know take this market." Um, Europe was taxing motorcycles from the U.S. over 500 cc's at six percent. They're now adding 25 percent to that, so it's a 31 percent tariff now. That's gnarly. So that's a good chunk of change. That's if it's made in the USA. In the USA. So if they made it in Taiwan, would it be under the same? Well, then it would be whatever the tariff is from Taiwan. Okay. Or Thailand, yeah, yeah, or yeah. Brazil, sure. or Australia. I don't think yeah. they actually have a plant in Taiwan. I think it's Thailand. I, I was but just yeah, giving an example. You, you yeah, know sure. what I'm saying. Okay. Um, they so don't have anything in Europe, 
right? Yet. Why? Well, okay. Is that I what think they're saying enough, that they would do? I think no. I think there's enough uh, friendly territories where they have some sort of production capability, yeah. or at least that they're already shipping uh, complete knockdown kits to, that they could make that work in, sure. a, in a way that makes sense. Um, my gut instinct is that we'll probably see European bikes made in Thailand. Yeah, sure. Which would maybe Brazil, but probably Thailand. Got it. Because Brazil is one of the countries that requires. It would be it's okay to do sub assemblies and you ship everything right. in, as long as the final assembly is done. Right, they don't care. Right. right, and when you go and you look at the tariffs uh, sheets, there's actually like these like really detailed lists and like they're coded for how goods are are tariffed or taxed. Yeah. And so there's there's one for motorcycles over 500 cc's, I think between 50 and 500, and then 50 and below. And then there's just motorcycle parts, and usually parts are way cheaper than than whole motorcycles, and that's where yeah. we get what's called a complete knockdown kit, which is basically a, a motorcycle in a box. Yeah, and it's it's actually kind of pretty ridiculous how complete it already is. Sure, usually the triple it's like a clamp, front and the forks, the front wheel, everything's all apart and yeah. together. The engine's all one unit. It's basically maybe even the frame is attached to the engine, yeah. right? So all you have to do is bolt on the triple clamp. And which already has all the stuff on it. All you're basically stuff. assembling the top triple clamp and you're putting on the swing arm and wheel. And then you've got, and maybe the seat and body work. Right? Yeah. We're talking like yeah. hours of work to get Which a is a cool done. thing to do if that's the way they want to do it. And it's employing people in Brazil to do that thing. Fair enough. I get it. Yeah. It's a very interesting way to get a, to sidestep exactly what we have here, which are, which are retaliatory tariffs or extremely high tariffs, prohibitive tariffs. So, so that happens. And Harley Davidson's like Harley Davidson is like, well, that's shenanigans. We're gonna just take all of our production that was in the U.S. getting shipped to Europe, and we're gonna move it to somewhere else. I, I suspect it'll be Thailand, and you know, tough cookies. And this is already after Harley Davidson has reshuffled its uh, factory options here in the U.S. and consolidated and redefined its workforce to try and make it more in line with the actual volume that they're producing. Because you have to remember. I mean, Harley Davidson's had a couple callings of the herd of its workforce, but they went from, you know, 300,000 units a year into the U.S. to 150,000 units a year yeah. in the U.S. So there's been a massive restructuring to, to make that company more in line with the realities of the marketplace and the realities of the industry. Yeah, and you can't hack on them. It's like, it's not like they're taking away those no, people. No, but the, the unions do hack on them. And the unions are constantly saying, like, you're shipping our jobs overseas, you're doing all these things. And... I don't think that's necessarily wrong because Harley is doing that to a certain extent. So instead of making bikes, like especially bikes for Southeast Asia and China, there there's huge tariffs coming from 100% the U.S. Tariffs. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So it's like, well, does it really make sense for us to make it in no. the in you know it's, Kansas it's City ridiculous. or York or Absolutely. any of these other Tomahawk or any of the other sure. plants, or do maybe we make the kits here in the U.S. and yeah. ship them over there, or yeah. maybe the just parts distributors whatever it is yeah. ship them to thailand and then we go from there and thailand has a zero percent tariff it makes a ton of sense so you kind of sit there like well yeah you're right but like man that's really like spotting the nose for the rest of the face kind of thing um in, in what way is it that well i mean it's that idea like so if you went along with that idea that the unions are floating there where you should keep building them in the u.s where it's like yeah okay so we'll oh, keep that's the we'll that's, keep 100 okay. jobs in the u.s but no one's going to buy those bikes over there yeah. anyways. So, so it's like, so we can't make them. So everyone kind of loses with that idea. Uh, Harley Davidson doesn't get the bump in sales. 
that means the workers aren't really going to be building building that many more bikes. Nope. So not that many more people are going to keep employed, or you could have the company do better. There's, I don't want to wade into it too much, but there's definitely a lot of friction between the workers' unions, and we and we actually saw this come to a boil. I think we talked about it like a dozen podcasts ago, where Harley Davidson the unions officially just kind of like ended their uh, agreement to cooperate. Yeah, because they've come to such a butting of heads over Harley Davidson's restructuring of its business and how much how many factories and how many employees it keeps at those factories. So that kind of gets us to where we are this week, where you see um, the tariffs come in almost a week ago today. 25%, which means... 25% increase, so it's 31% tariff. So if if somebody is in England, France, is it EU or is it... European Euro- Union. So England isn't necessarily part of that. Well, technically, England hasn't Brexited yet. Okay, but once they Brexit, they would be. Right. But, so for all intents and purposes... Or it wouldn't be. Anybody that's in the EU, right? Right, is Russia in the EU? No. So Harley still could sell whatever that tariff is for Russia. I think there actually is a pretty high tariff to get into. Fair Russia. enough. Okay. Yeah. So there's that. But the EU, you sell the bikes at thirty percent. Oof. So most that that's going to make a huge hit. That sixteen percent is probably going to chip down to half. It'll be half that. I might. That's my guess. Just off the cuff, thinking like. There are going to be so many people that are like, no, I'm going to buy used Harley. I don't care. Or are Harley's enough of a premium product yeah. that you think that they'll... It, it's like how inelastic is that demand curve? Ooh, um, inelastic demand curve. You like that? So oh. it's, it's this idea that when you get to, especially with Harley-Davidson, which is more on the premium side, Yeah, is there really a difference between a $25,000 Harley and a $30,000 Harley in the demographic yeah, that makes enough. like sure. almost seven that's figures a year. Like that's why I wanted to like, make, do they really care? Probably mm-hmm. not. And the Harley Davidson does kind of swim in that space in the U S and more so in the, in the European market. So, I mean, yeah, I think sales would go down if they kept, but it's not going to be, they half. kept it here in the U S I don't think it'd go down half, but it's going to take a hit and it's certainly going to, be more difficult for them to sell the smaller displacement bikes, which, you know, aren't as immune. Yeah. You know, they're more price sensitive. So and that's probably where they're growing. That's my guess is that. I think in Europe, they're just, they're just growing as a brand. It's kind of like, I mean, you know, it's funny when I first lived in Europe, Levi jeans were a big thing. Yeah. Like, that was a brand name. Like, you have Levi jeans. You and have they Converse. Want you, people would have you, you bringing. Got, yeah. You've got Converse shoes. Like, can you bring like a, barrel load of those with yeah, you the next all time my all the dudes that i was on the race team with that were yeah. english they would on purpose they would go and buy a shit ton of different yeah. size jeans and whatnot to take back home and it's now like, it's why? yeah so now weird. it's carhartt is actually the brand that's like that well it's good to really know that i'm i'm hip and because uh, i'm just you're a carhartt super, wearing yeah my, you're my super mofo. freaking hip in europe yeah. yo you didn't even know it no, i did have no idea so there is kind of like this romanticism with the u.s and kind of like this u.s blue collar <laughs> thing that that harley davidson's feeding off of in yeah, sure. and it's 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 kind of a niche kind of thing it'd be it's no different than riding a bmw or a ducati here it's like oh well, i'm in the yeah the teutonic german club or i'm in the you know the the red italian parade yeah sure. oh i'm an american mate yeah that was like a little australian yeah uh, that was whatever. really bad but okay. whatever they still got the queen on their currency. They're British. Um. So, yeah, it's interesting. And then, of course, we see Trump retaliate and say that this is just Harley using the situation as a cop-out to be able to move more production out of the U.S. 
He said that something, yeah. some permutation of the beginning and the end. Hmm. And I just, it was funny right before you came over, I was reading something on Fox news. Um, they did an interview. What is it? Bikers for Trump or Harley's for Trump. It's basically some group yeah. that's basically like pro Trump and uh-huh. saying like, Hey, you know, if Harley wants to undercut the American worker, we've got other American brands that we can buy from. And, um, you know, they're not necessarily wrong. It'll be really interesting to see where this leads. I don't really see, unless the tariff situation changes, I really just don't see how it's going to work. I think Trump was talking about taxing Harley Davidson, but you can't tax a single company more than others. Yeah. So of course he would start talking I don't, about that. Right? Yeah, I just don't know how, I don't know what the, the administration's retaliation to Harley Davidson is going to be. And I don't know what kind of precedent that sets. If we start having an executive branch that is punitive to American businesses, like like specific <laughs> American businesses when they do things that sure. are in their best interest. And, and that's one of the things I wrote on ANR. Like, you know, I don't really care where your politics are on the issue. At the end of the day, uh, fewer bikes are going to get made in the US, fewer people are going to get employed, uh, f- less amounts of aluminum and steel are going to be used. And those businesses, American, and in terms of taxable income, less of it's going to be made in the United States. Yeah. So whatever the goal was for this trade war in terms of making America great again, I don't see the net result being positive. No. So something we have to have a rethink here. But I, it, it's interesting times. This is not the last time that you and I are going to talk oh, about no, this. Oh, no, for sure. It'll be, it'll be, yeah, very. And as you can imagine, for me working for a company that Harley's investing in, uh, or that is partnering with to make bikes. I don't, I don't know if it really is going to move, uh, uh, change the price of bread for that deal. Cause we're, you know, I don't know what the, that's obviously not an electric, uh, right now yeah. thing, but nothing happens in a vacuum though. I mean, sure. what's bad for Harley on a certain level will trickle down as being bad for Alta. I don't know if that's like a direct like, oh, we're not going to do X because of this Harley deal or yeah, sure. Y got changed because of this tariff. But, you know, I'm not too worried about uh, it right now. Rising tide raises all ships and the inverse is also true, you know. Sure. Thing. Sure. That's true. I get it. But um, yeah. One thing I'll say is that reading this is one of the few times where I try and stay away from comments. The comment sections are the bottom of the barrel for me i was actually pretty proud of the in our comments hey, you section know this what time. that's why i'm bringing this 70, up 70 comments deep and it was on, still pretty good on that on your anr article for this topic there was some really interesting takes on it and yeah. i i was very proud of it. i was like you know what that's really cool that there's enough people here that are coming with point counterpoint i mean there's a couple of knuckle dragon assholes but you know <laughs> you're gonna have that it right? happens sure we, so. we do pretty well in the comment section. I, I will, I will, if I can toot my own horn just a little bit. And I would say a lot of the people listening to the podcast are probably commenters on the site. So there yeah. you go. Fair enough. But yeah, there's a good one. So if you can, or if you haven't, read the article and then check that out because it gives you a lot of interesting counterpoints for sure. Yeah. We'll see where this goes. Um, I've heard a lot of really interesting things in this space. Don't know if I'm quite ready to talk about it, but Harley Davidson's business model, let me, let me put it this way. At some point in time, we're going to have to talk about Harley Davidson as an assembled in America brand, not in a made in America brand. Yeah. Just as we see with, I'm looking at my iPhone, which is designed in California, I think is the buzzword they like. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing a lot of manufacturing changing. Like, I don't know how much longer in this 
industry climate that we have going on. Because I've been looking at the numbers lately, Quentin, and the industry is not doing well. I think this last month showed some signs of life. But overall, we're going to be down double digits this year, barring some sort of summer miracle for sales. Yeah. And we've been we've been kind of just slowly Ooh. eking away every podcast talking about that. So I don't want to do it. I don't want to yeah, go much. down too much. But you know, but understand that that's a pressure point. That's going to be something that yeah. that causes brands to reevaluate their situation. I heard a rumor that Yamaha was looking to get rid of all of its dealerships, make them corporate owned so it could have control. <laughs> I don't know how much credit I give that rumor. Yeah, sure. But I heard it. And yeah. and in this climate you can't immediately dismiss it as false. And you're like, well, that's an interesting idea. Same thing like Harley Davidson. Well, what if what if we made no bikes in the USA and we imported everything as complete knockdown kits? Wouldn't that be weird? Wouldn't that be interesting? That's an interesting idea. What if all the brands started doing that? Because you look at the efficiencies of manufacturing and where they are, and and you know, part of it is how you design the thing that you're building, mm-hmm. whether or not that's cheap to make in sure. uh, another country or yep. cheap to make here in the United States. Absolutely. It's what materials you're using. Sure. It's a lot of different things. So it's a part of that changing landscape jam that we talk a little bit about. Yes. Speaking of changing landscapes, mm. I spent quite a bit of time in Italy this past oh, yeah. uh, sure. couple weeks. Were you in Tuscany? I was not. I was okay. not in the Tuscany. I was in northern Italy and I was in southern Italy. I was in Sicily. So I started out outside Milan in Varese. Mm. on yet another MV Agusta press launch. Mm. I, I like what MV Agusta is doing because they're basically pretending they're like... sending you to Italy? Yeah, you like well, that? I, I like that part. My <laughs> my Delta account likes that a lot. Uh-huh. Although this time I flew Condor. Oh. Have you ever heard of Condor? I have, but only in my searches for European flights and wondering kind of, is this another oh, Ryanair? It is literally the Ryanair of the transatlantic you, flights. It is you, so bad. Do you uh, stand while you're flying? It wouldn't surprise <laughs> me. It wouldn't surprise me. They were me. trying to do that with Ryanair. <laughs> they wanted to put everybody at stand like on a bus. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> um, Is this ring recording? Just to make sure. Are you recording? I don't know what. The numbers all say zero. Is that good? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the thing with Ryanair is the CEO always comes out with something stupid like that. Yeah. I think just to yeah. get headlines. Yeah, like Because he's okay. just a swarmy son of a bitch. Yeah. Okay. Condor, though, is not far off. Like <laughs> the, the media center thing, everything on it is paid for. All the food is paid for. Every bag you have to pay for. Yeah. I mean, they just... So it's Frontier Airlines. Yeah, I was going to say, they're like the spirit slash frontier yeah, which of, is, of the Atlantic. If, if anybody here that's listening happens to want to get a flight anywhere in the country, just be really careful if you're going to... You see the prices. It, it is reflective of the service you'll get and yeah. of what you're going to... And I'm just being serious. Like, if you're the type of person that has a handbag or a backpack and you're just flying and you want to be super, super, super cheap... That's no, kind of, but the uh, Spirit and Frontier are charging you for carry on now. Oh, yeah. Okay. Fair <laughs> it's enough. like if you bring anything with you, you're yeah, going to get sure. charged. But that's a good example of what they'll do. Yeah. Right. It's uh, a really horrible well, experience. Condor, the great thing about Condor is they're so like cheap, but they're so German. They're the second largest airline out of Germany. Huh. Okay. Their hub is Frankfurt. They're so German that there's no like bump you up to you know, premium economy or first class or anything like mm. that. So if you're in cattle class, you will stay in cattle class. Mm. And of course, you know, Italian travel agency, I'm in the back of the plane, like literally the last row, middle seat, yeah, transatlantic sure. horribleness. Yeah. 
And it's fun. Like I'm like the last one on the plane and you walk through first class, which is completely empty. You walk through premium economy, which has a dozen people in 50 seats. And then you come into economy and it's every seat is full. Of course. Sure. And you're just sitting there going like, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to just move people around. Like just from like a weight balance yeah. on the plane, yeah. you're not going to nope. maybe move some people forward. But it's like, no, we are very German. We don't this move is- the seats. You'll stay in your seat. I must break you. Almost problem. Russian. Almost Russian. Almost. My, Russian. I don't have good like delineation between my accents. No, I have like okay. three accents. It was close. It was close enough for right. Yeah. Not quite. Das Boot. Wunderlich, but you know. Wunderlich. Kyle's like no, 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 not even close. No. Okay. All right. So uh, bottom line, Condor bad deal. Condor bad you deal. Got don't, to Italy. don't fly Condor. I flew five airlines to get to Italy and back. Seriously. Yeah, it was Gross. ridiculous. Okay. Got to Varese. We rode the Turismo. Oh, get ready for this. Say this three oh, times God. fast. MV Agosta, Turismo Veloce, 800 Luso SCS. There's no Stradale in there. There's no Superleggera <laughs> in there. <laughs> okay. What's the SCS, the clutch thing? SCS is their smart clutch ah, system. Smart clutch. Which is okay. literally a recluse clutch for a sport bike. Yeah. Which, which is, is a, of note that's new for, that's, like, that's the first that's the time first. recluse has done that. Yeah. Right? Well, no, they've had stuff out for like Harleys and things like Have that. Have they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did not know that. Well, I mean, come on. Sure. All right, I get it. Go on. Oh, yeah. 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 Go on. Okay. God. Okay. So that was interesting. I, so I rode the MV Augusta Turismo Veloce in France like three, four years ago. You also rode it down at Cal Speedway at some point, right? During, mm, remember when no, MV Augusta think, was doing it? I don't think that had been out yet. No. But, but yeah, I rode a bunch of bikes there. But no, I don't think I rode that. It, they had one there. That was it. I think they had oh, one there. Oh, maybe that was the thing. And it was, yeah. it just come out. Okay. And then we went to the press launch for okay. it. So Envigus is doing all these press launches for bikes that have already been out but are now Euro 4. And I think they're also trying to show like, hey, guys, we're still in business. Yeah. Remember, remember us? Come buy a bike. Yeah. But the Trismo Veloce is one of those bikes. Like, I've always liked it. I've always liked I think the way I like the way it looks. I, I liked it when I rode it in France. This is a bags as bags. And it's, it's a, a upright it's adventure sport touring tour. adventure sport. I think more is the sport, name yeah. we like to use. But sure. MV Agus was like, this is not a sport tour. This is a sport bike with bags. And you're like, uh huh, uh huh, whatever, whatever, whatever makes you okay. sleep well. It's like, Giovanni. oh, it's WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca. No, it's Laguna Seca. Right. No, 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 no. It's um, what was the one that people really Infineon Raceway? Yeah. Serious point. You mean serious point? Yeah, it's serious. Point. Now it's snow and raceway, and you're like, no, no it's still serious that's point. Serious point. Yeah, keep 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 trying. Yeah, you'll find it eventually. Yeah. Serious point. Just okay. just let it roll off the tongue. Sport bike with bags. Shut the fuck up. Okay. All well, right. I mean that's. I mean, like you and I are like sitting there, like rolling our eyes, like, oh my god, give me a break. But that at least <laughs> is a good way of imparting kind of the ethos of that machine, and that's kind of what MV Gust wants to be. They want to be a sport bike company. They want to be a pre- ultra premium company yeah. that's just got really strong sporty leanings. And that's the DNA that they're trying to put into this bike. And it, it's it's basically a 800cc Brutale with a, a more of a windscreen, different electronics, upright, bags, more upright seating, more position. upright, m- way more comfy, slightly bigger tank. And now it's got a version that has this clutch on it. Mm. And it's a good bike. I, I mean, if you had to only have one bike in your garage, this would be on the short list for sure. I would like to see a little bit more power. I think it's rated at 108 horsepower. I think 120 would get you there. Hmm. I think that'd be a little, because you kind of get 
80, 90 miles an hour and it kind of tapers off, kind of like the Brutale 800 sure. does. You want a little, little more. You want a little bit more, but it's super light. And that's the thing that, that really gets you. I think it's 432 pounds really? wet. Wet? Hold on. Let me that s- can't be. Let me scroll that, that into the notes. That's like dry. 423 that- dry. Sorry. Okay. That I was going to. Just knowing motorcycle structures and what it takes to hold bags. Yeah. That's really the main thing is all the structure in this, the subframe. That's what makes a lot of those bikes so, like it's a so Multistrada's yeah. and the... Well, it's still 30 pounds lighter than a Multi 950. No, it's of note that you're saying that, but that's because that motor... Now, here's what you're getting. You're not getting that 120 horsepower because you don't have a big CC thing with a big Well, you clutch, could. With it, just, a big, it would make the power so much farther up in the rev range. Sure. Because that 800, would be the 800 RR makes 140-something. No doubt. And it would just not be good for... No. Maybe it would be if you kind of tweaked it a little bit, but not, not a lot. But what I'm saying is relative to like the 1200s and, you know, the big long-legged adventure machines, big crankshafts, big pieces and parts, pistons, everything starts making the engine uh, quite heavy. So having that motor already, it's already, man, it's pretty good. It's light. It's made to to do the thing. So then if all you have to do is strap on crap on that, it'd be good. I'm just out of my wish list. I wish I had 20 more horses. I'm not sitting there like, this bike needs 20 more horses. It's It's what I'd want. It'd be good. I still want a new dash. I still want different controls. Oh, I got all my MV Yugos. But it's not that bad, or is it, is it better? It's a better dash. It's still like from early 2000s, though. I mean, is it really? Okay. Sure. No, I mean, because it's just like the way it's shaped. They still do that craziness. Like, like, I don't know why they still do things like this. Like the odometer. If you've gone 123 miles, most bikes you see like one, two, three, decimal point zero. On MV Augusta, you see zero, 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 one, two, three, zero. <laughs> because you can't see the decimal point because it looks like a speck of dust. Uh, and they do like the tr- the leading zeros as if it was an analog odometer. There's just things like that where you're just like, why are you still doing it this way? Yeah. And there's way too much information on the screen. And it's just, it doesn't look good. Um, I could probably pull up a photo for it if you really, really want. That's okay. I, I, I believe it. I'm just still amazed that it's it's that difficult what about the user interface you always complain about the user interface but the new brutale you were saying was better it's better and the controls are better i mean overall like i like this bike if i'm giving this like a, a number out of 10 it's a nine okay eight and a half nine so pretty good i'm not sold on the clutch thing i don't know this this is my this is my jam like if you want like the smart clutch system review in a nutshell mv augusta already has i think one of the best quick shifters on the market especially for a street bike I'm not really sitting there needing a clutch. The only time I'm using a clutch is when I'm stopped or in, and when yep. I'm starting the bike on. So all that this auto clutch does for me is eliminate the need for me to use the clutch at low speeds and in traffic. Now, if I've got a passenger and a bunch of bags and all my stuff and I'm starting from a hill and I'm in stop and go traffic, maybe that's the feature that I actually really like having. But it does kind of muddle the the throttle feel and the bike feel enough that you're like, okay, this isn't quite like how I would do it. I don't know. Like you've got such a great clutch operation without it that I don't know if I want to give that up for the ability to like not use, not to have to feather the clutch when I'm riding. I could give a shit. You know, it's just one of those like, eh. that being said, I could see some riders that are totally into it and it's an option. So it's not like you're throwing it down your neck. So I'm like, okay, fine. I don't know. If I'm MV Augusta, if I'm going to be spending all this time developing this technology when there's other fish to fry, but you know, if it's an easy one and, and Recluse has to do the bulk of the work to make it work, 
All right, maybe why not? $2,000 option in, here in the U.S., and I think it's only 700 euros in the European Union. So the quite the uh, price disparity, which seems to be a trend that we have here in the U.S. right yeah, now. Yeah, sure. Augusta. But yeah, I, really, I like that bike. If I had one in my garage and didn't have any other bikes, I'd be stoked. You could you could you could do it on track day on it, just as you could do a track day on a multi strata or anything sure. like that. Yeah, you can ride long distance. It's actually very comfortable. They made they did a really good job on the seat and the fairing and the the windscreen. It looked like it would be decently comfortable for a passenger. The bags are narrower than the handlebars, which I really like, and they also are sculpted to kind of cup the passenger's legs yeah which is kind of cool yeah so they're very well is this integrated the one that has the seat on the bag oh no that was the no old, that was that, that weird bmw that was that bmw concept that was yeah. like a complete ripoff of the turismo veloce ah, okay so um, except for that aspect where they put area for your bum on the bags which i thought was pretty right cool. that was interesting yeah yeah Whatever. uh i had an interesting talk with adrian morton about that the designer for mv augusta so mm. Mm, we had some words mm. it was interesting i don't think i can repeat any of them you can imagine his response, though. Not happy. Imitation is the highest form of flattery, Quentin. Yeah, it is. So, yeah, good times in Verace. We got really lucky with the weather. It, it thundered right after we left. A um, little bit of craziness. A couple people complained on the ride about um, the, the pace of the, the riding and the weaving in between the Italian traffic. So I thought it was interesting because what are your expectations when you travel to Italy? And ride a motorcycle there. That's part of the thing. Yeah. Um, I didn't want a lane split. That is kind of what it is. And and you know what? You and I get a little poopy about that. To play no, devils, to play devil's gnarly. advocate, it, it is crazy over there. Anywhere. Lane splitting is intimidating and gnarly for anybody that hasn't done it and hasn't eased into it. Yeah. So it's... It's it's shitty of me to make fun of it, but at the same time, well, and also understand that you and I up. have lane split in California. We grew our teeth oh, yeah. in California for motorcycling. Yeah, if absolutely. you don't come from that, and this is like maybe your first to fifth yeah. time ever lane splitting, doing it in Italy is a gnarly thing. Yeah, especially when you're in voracious traffic. Voracious. Voracious. Is it voracious? No, it's Veracini. Is the oh, the denim. I like voracious. What about vivacious? Vivacious. <laughs> Yes. Uh, of note, the, most of those complaints came from our other riding group. My riding group was led by mm, GP Grand Prix motorcycling legend Marco Lucanelli. Oh, cool. Yeah. Super cool, dude. I bet. Just super cool. Yeah. I had a great time hanging out with Lucky. him, riding with him. Lucky. Number 619. Um, just just a little brag point. It's pretty cool when when literally a MotoGP legend comes up and goes, you rode really well today. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah, I know the lane split. That's cool. Yeah, good right times. On. We sure. high fived. Um, did he have a replica helmet with the with the black star on his helmet? And did you? Well, he did have like an AGV replica, or did he? I think he had the new AGV modular on. To okay. be honest, because he had he had a pretty cool helmet back in the day. He was GP, and then he came over to states, and he was running a lot of Battle of the Twins like yeah. things for a while on a Ducati. So. A lot of people know him from that. Yeah. It was cool to hang out with him. We went out to dinner with us. That was, that was a rad part. Who else was riding with you? Uh, the Mr. Wahid was out Wahid. with us. With his, uh, he is now a trader, full corporate, working for motorcyclists. Congratulations <laughs> to yeah, him. Congrats. We're happy for him. Yeah, sure. Uh, Arthur Caldwell from Ultimate Motorcycling was there. Yeah, it was the usual, it, usual, suspects. usual suspects of people were there. Okay. Yeah. yeah, good times. 
Um, and then we were, as we were leaving, the Brits were coming in. Mm. Wild, Those crazy, crazy Brits. Brits yeah. Oh man, they got they got horrible weather. They got dumped on. I'm not even sure what that's they ended up doing. That's normal for them though. Yeah. All right. That'd be like they Port- lost the that's war. Portland yeah, weather. That's fine. They lost. That's fine. <laughs> as I reminded them in the hotel. Did you? <laughs> we had a good time. We were up until like 1 a.m. drinking and just yelling at each other. It was yeah, good. Right. Good times. Good times at the press launch. So went from from went from race day just down the street down to Milan and visited Pirelli's headquarters, which is a pretty rad facility. Like. World headquarters. World headquarters. This is where all the all the business gets done. Huh. In Milan. In Milan. I didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know that's where they were. Yeah. Uh, really cool facility. It, now, it's built around a giant cooling tower. And they left that there as like an homage to what the country looked like, you know, pre-World War II. Oh, so it's not a cooling tower for a nuclear reactor. It's a well, cooling tower for... I mean, no one would say nuclear reactor. Now it's got that shape <laughs> and they kept using the word cooling tower. And I'm like, cooling for what? What are you cooling in there? Because there's a part of me that's like, um, if I had a Geiger counter on me right now, really? Would that, would that okay. be okay? Would that, I was just joking because I know, legitimately think it was a nuclear reactor that they built their, their facility on top of. Huh? Uh, that's my take. Someone from Pirelli can call me and let me know what's up. I didn't okay. want to ask. Right. I really didn't want to know. Well, you should. You could probably check yourself for, um, you know, a little. Did it? Did Truthfully, when you've flown as much as I have in the recent, like I've gotten the equivalent of like ten years of X-rays. You get a lot of X-rays when you fly. Oh God, I never really thought about. Yeah, because you, you're out of the the atmosphere so much that you're more exposed. Oh, I thought you were just talking about through the they're going through the security lines. No, because no that because now yeah. it's the micro millimeter millimeter wave. Yeah. Machine, which is different. Oh yeah. That's that's just so they can see your penis. Right. Sure. If if they could. No, they, they can. can. Have you not seen the thing? No. You gotta go like what Google. I'm saying is it would be really hard tough to find, man. They'd be like it's called millimeter wave, Quinn. <laughs> <laughs> how many millimeters do you need? <laughs> you know how small a millimeter is? <laughs> Come on. It's like a little pinprick. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. That's okay, a, so yeah, that's being a dick joke. <laughs> Sorry, mom. <laughs> being uh being up in the whatever sphere you're in. Are you in the strat? No, you're in the oh, I'm not so good at my spheres. No, I don't neither am I. Whatever sphere you're in, where those spheres forty thousand feet. Yeah. Bottom line is you're getting more uh X-rays. More X-rays. Yeah, okay. not so good for you. Um so yeah, the the cooling tower is probably the least of my worries. But really cool to go see their facility. So we saw how they Oh, we saw so many things on how they test the tires for rolling noise. We were in a, a anechoic chamber, which is a you know, soundproof chamber for anechoic. Yeah, without echo. It's a good your, punk name for those of you out there. Anechoic. Anechoic. Yeah. Right. Okay. It's, getting, it's not gonna. It's not gonna get you know. Not a lot of people are gonna pick that up. I get it. But the ones that do are gonna really appreciate it for sure. Yeah. Um, if they can hear it, right. Oh, look at you. Well done. Well done. That's a point. Mm. Boom. Point right. for Quentin. So anechoic chamber, which tries to make the most quiet area that you can. So you, all you're hearing is the sound from right. so then they put, the, tire, the tire. Apparently the one at Harley Davidson, um, our, our good friend TJ that works at Harley told me that it was like, if he could get me in to show me any one thing, he was like, it's a room within a room. I think we probably talked about this on the podcast. I apologize if you've already heard this, but it's a room within a room that's already quiet. It's like super, super, super quiet. So that's a really neat thing yeah. that they have to be pay attention to it because road noise is gnarly. Yeah. A lot of the chambers we went into 
were independently suspended inside the building like they had their yeah. own like they were separate from the, sure. the actual building from itself. all vibrations so you could see like i don't know an inch or so gap on the floor between it and the actual chamber yeah. room Trippy. i don't think the anechoic chamber was like that though they just had literally four feet of foam and these really sharp triangle yeah sound catching uh things but it was cool like they open up the vault door and it just keeps coming and coming and coming you're like well thick is this freaking door it's literally four feet thick oh it's crazy awesome we've got to see um a testing rig where they have the tires spinning and they they wobble it back and forth to see the heat generation and the tread life and so putting um, force on it that's not just radial but axial axial force you also got to see is this um, all motorcycle stuff at this stage or this is all most of the stuff we saw was cars because the facility is cars and bikes but you could look at the rig and the the racks of tires and there's car stuff and there's bike stuff okay Um, i figured there has to be quite a lot of different stuff for motorcycle because it operates in a different plane right or or multiple planes instead of just so we got to see that one that was doing the axial load testing that was a car tire that was being done but right next to it, they're showing us the machine for the motorcycle one. And they, we actually got to see a video and they got the motorcycle tire spinning up like 60 miles an hour. And then they lean it in. Yeah. I think they could do up to 40 or 45 degrees of lean. Neat. Okay. And then bring it back and they could you know, keep doing that for however long until the tire is done, I guess. Um, Interesting car- note. Um, Josh Heron at the Laguna Seca race this past weekend made note that on his data – on the Pirellis that he was using in World Superbike, he was able to reach, I think, 66 degrees. Wow. Right? That's and, a lot. And I asked, well, then, what are you with the AMA spec Dunlops? And it was like 62. So just a point of interest. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Because how often do you get a rider yeah. that gets to do that? It has, it's forth. been a while. Same track, that same Somebody day. has done the thing where they have done both oh and they've swapped the tires. It's not that common. Shout out to Josh Aaron for doing that. That, that was, was no joke. And... um. I was talking to to Andy Cohn. Yeah, Cohn. Sorry, and he was. I want to say Con. Con. No, Cohn. Yeah. Okay. Um, he was saying like he was watching Josh get stretched out on the grid for the Moto America race because he was so cramped up after yeah doing the World Superbike race. Sure, yeah, it's not only thing. I don't know if he got the results he was looking for. No, but, but you he know, acquitted himself. It was okay. worth trying until he slapped a corner worker. I should say. I didn't see that. I, I, yeah. He's getting a three uh, grid penalty, three spaces for the next race back. Yeah, I saw that. I just didn't see the actual thing. Sound like he, he didn't like slap him in the face, more like like slapped him like, away. Like it was like, like, hey, hey, get out of my way. Yeah. No, oh, that sucks. All right. Sorry to completely sabotage your Pirelli thing, but he was on Pirelli, so there was a bit of a... There's an overlap there, right? sure. Okay, yeah. so go back to your thing. You got to see all the equipment that would all, all the cool, make the tires do the t- things. All the cool. Um, got to talk to a lot of Metzler people. There was a cool... Metzler people. I Metzler. forget about... So are all Metzlers made in Italy now? Metzlers are made in Germany. Okay. And most Pirellis are made in Germany. Ah. They do share a production facility. And that's about... This is the thing. Like That's about as much overlap as there is. So we get up to the the building, all the motorcycle people are on like the fourth floor, but there's definitely a Pirelli side and a Metzler side. And how much they talk, I don't know. But the only real p- parts that those companies overlap is is in the production facility, is in the same location, and they share like the same accountant people and the same, you know, they're yeah. on the same electricity grid and things like that. Okay. But those are it's they try to really make it two independent companies. Huh. Now, I had a really hard time telling you 
what the difference is in like philosophy in terms of like what tires are actually produced. Cause when you talk to them, they're like, well, the Metzler tire is really more German and it's more <laughs> Teutonic. I, I would love to know. And it's more like, it's like, geez, you're making tires. How different are you going to make them? Like what, what is going to be the, I would get it if they, one was a touring uh, brand and that right. you focused on touring and one was a sport right. brand. I get it if that's what they were doing, but I don't think that's what they're doing, right? Metzler was such a big deal back in the early 90s. There was a, a few types of Metzler tire that were just well known. Like if you were racing or riding, Metzler was way more of a brand than I think it is now, but maybe it's just me because I've been so entrenched in Dunlop Road Racing and then Pirelli Ducati Land no, I that I haven't paid fair. attention to Metzler that much. I think that's fair. And I think that, that was a, something I brought up. And they were telling me that Metzler's better known in the U.S. for its V-twin yeah. lineup, yeah, which is not something I would really say is like necessarily true, but it, that's probably where they hang their hat. The only other thing I would say yeah. is like in Supermoto, the tire you want to be on, oh, yeah. Metzler. They have that's that the super soft 16 and a half. There's even. a 16 and it's a 17 and then the rear is a 165 and that's basically the tire everyone runs. Yeah. If you're racing Supermoto, you're probably on a Metzler. But outside of that, and I think they look at that as a as a growth opportunity. Um, it is kind of funny when you like talk to them, like, so what's the difference? What's the thing? Like, there is difference in construction. There is difference in compounds. I think some tires have a lot more overlap than there should. Like, one of the tire, I got to ride the entire Metzler lineup or entire in its entirety. <laughs> that's like yeah, the, that's were, like the same joke. You, you were tired afterwards. I was really, I was really <laughs> tired of it. Okay. Going around and around on the issue here, <laughs> Quentin. I've got a beat on you. Oh, jeez. You better stop, or otherwise I'm going to have a total blowout and come after you. <laughs> I tried so hard to make a quality podcast, and I just <laughs> side around. We, we just keep going around in circles. <laughs> Can't get a break. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Keep keep going. <laughs> so, yeah, I got to ride the entire uh, Metzler lineup down in or close to it in Sicily. And we'll get to that. Story oh, in a weird. Second. Okay. So the, the, you, you go into this main thing and then you get to go to Sicily. Right. Right. So Metzler slash Pirelli's R and D facilities down in Sicily. Huh. And they've got a test track down there. They've got a racetrack down there. And then they've got a pretty good mix of road with different. Yeah types of tarmac sure and that's where they kind that, of that use just their, because their of ground sicily being sicily or because they have built that no that's just sicily being sicily okay. and i think truthfully like think they just like being in sicily i, I think if you looked at any area you would get a pretty wide variety of asphalt sure just guessing yeah. i don't know i'm not i'm not really in that market yeah but i'm just kind of feeling like you know here in portland we've got weird roads in the hills weird road in town yeah but back i would east. say that the the aggregate is all very similar until you get to eastern oregon maybe you got, you got normal asphalt you got shitty cobblestony stuff and then out in eastern Oregon, you got chip seal right which is of note completely different than anything else that you can ride so if you got them like you can destroy tires out on that chip seal if you're you have absolutely like in one ride out to Baker city and back, which is like a thousand miles. Maybe you can, I've done it. I've completely destroyed a tire, like surprisingly bad because that chip seal is so nasty. Right. Mm -hmm. And also riding too fast on the street. Mm -hmm. But the, the go is to take old, well cycled race tires. And apparently they, well, I know I've done it. They, they work really well out there and they wear a little bit harder. Strange. <laughs> 
might go. So I can see where you got whatever. Um, what is the? Is it Etna? Mount, Mount Etna. Etna. Yes. So you've got a volcanic thing. Yes. So they probably we, we used, rode up Mount Etna actually. Did you really? Yeah, it's so cool. You, you probably have roads that are made out of you know nor, nor whatever the normal asphalt is that's there, but then also volcanic rock well, is probably put into it. I think right? that's the part of it. Yeah, and there is a bit of volcanic rock that's in it, and I think also every now and then there's a lava flow, and the roads have to get repaved. So yeah, that sure. means you're going to have you know fresh tarmac, yeah, kind of gradients. old tarmac, and then yeah. super old tarmac, depending on where the lava flow flow has been. How big was the racetrack? Was it like a legit racetrack? We didn't get to go out to actually see it, but it is what I understand quite quite big. Huh. Um, we were talking like, hey, this would actually be a pretty cool place for a press launch. You know, yeah. you, could, you could ride on the street one day, do the racetrack the next day, then they go out to the testing facility. I'm surprised they... I've never heard of it. It's this in before. Sicily, which is a cool place to go to in terms sure. of locations. The weather's always pretty good there. There's a lot of pluses. Um, but to, to go back to one of the points I was trying to make... On the overlap, I got to ride the KRU 3, which is... The what? The Metzler KRU 3 is their adventure bike. Oh, yeah. Knobby-ish tire. KRU. Right. Karoo. Oh. Karoo. K-A-R-O-O. Oh, Karoo. Was... Karoo. Yeah. But, which is very, very similar in looks to the Pirelli Scorpion Rally. Yeah. It's that same kind of banded, not knobby. Quite as gnarly as a TKC80. No, no, it's not. And I kind of brought that up. I think we will see a gnarly tire from them soon. Um, But it was one like they're like, well, they're different, but they're very, very similar. The the compounds are very similar. And obviously the structures and all that thing. Um, So yeah, it was interesting. I was, I hadn't been on Metzler Tires in a while. It was, I think all the tires impressed me a lot. I really like the Keru. We were in this. What was it on? What, what it was on an Africa Twin. I was, we were in this riverbed. Just it was perfect because it was like big rock, big rock with loose sand, and it was like the perfect kind of paddle huh. tire to get through that. Um, and then there's the Keru Street, which is kind of like a kind of like a Pirelli Scorpion, which is like the stock tire on the Multistrada. Yeah, sure. So heavily and that siped. Up well, heavily siped but round. Yeah. I quite liked the. Um, the Sport Tech RR. I was on a BMW S1000 XR with that, and that hooked up really well. So there's a, there's some really cool, interesting things on the Metzler lineup that got to got to experience. And um, the R and D facility. I mean, they got so many cool bikes down there, and they test all this stuff. So yeah, it, it was impressive to kind of see like how the the tires get made. And I think tires are such an interesting thing to me because it's such a huge part of the game. Yeah, it's, it's such like that is what connects your motorcycle to the road. It's such an important piece of that puzzle. That's how to go fast. And it's how to be safe. 99% of motorcyclists literally know nothing about it. Yeah. You know, we had a conversation at lunch just talking about silica and why silica is such a big deal. Yeah. And how is that different from um, carbon black and, and all these different things and why we use one or the other. And sure. like there's just stuff like that that just kind of gets blown over into that. We'll probably have to explore in some stories on ANR and maybe on the motor podcast. Um because it's just, it's really, it's just, a, for me, it's just really fascinating, like how they construct the tires, how they, what compounds they pick. And it was, you know, and going back to the thing in Milan, they had a bunch of their competitors' tires and they're looking at how do they build them and yeah. how do they, you know, what's their velocity, how much grip do they have? And they have special machines that can measure the grip and they have special machines that can look at the contact patch size and very interesting stuff. I mean, it's, it's big business. So. Cool. I was very, very stoked to get to see that. And um, 
We need to go do two, two, two enthusiast podcasts from their test track. I think that could happen. Yeah. I think it can happen. <laughs> um, so that brings us to this gift that I brought you. From oh, the Italy. hat. I brought you a hat. Yeah, right. But I didn't bring you a hat, Quentin, because the next the next item I have here on my talking sheet is that we need to talk about you getting back into the racing scene. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because you are back in Omra racing a Ninja 250. Ninja, please. Which is what you raced at the six hours. Yeah. I bought that bike. I decided, you know what? I had so much fun that I'm going to buy the bike. And word got back to Italy about this. Oh, really? The I wonder how. Word had reached <laughs> Italy about the long-haired Wilson <laughs> and his racing aspirations. Right so that hat isn't just a hat. That is Pirelli is sponsoring your season. This oh, year, really? So. Yes. <laughs> wow. So we're going to get you some tires and oh, uh, cool. we'll hear about it on the podcast. All right on. That's super stoked because I, I have to admit, I chose a different tire to start with because the locals, the, all the local yokels, the, the locals, which frankly are friends and, um, yeah, I, 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 I trust the people and they were like, Hey, we use these. So I started off on them and I didn't have the best time with them. Not going to lie. Whereas what the person I, I rode with uh, and what I had ridden with at the six that hour. six hour were Pirellis. Yeah. And the bike had been set up for Pirellis and all that stuff. And I'm like, well, I'll give these a go because I have no, might as well. I'm, I'm the type of person that likes to try a bunch of different things, right? I, I don't mind it. But yeah, that's super stoked because then uh, it makes it a lot easier for me to just, you know, choose a brand and then stick with it, right? So that's cool. Right on. Thank you. You're so, welcome. Yeah. And, and thank you to Pirelli for... for yeah. You're full factory now. Yeah, right. You're on the fact you're gonna have to do some media commitments. Uh, I don't know what your availability is. (laughs) Don't do interviews. God. All right. Okay. Cool. Right on. Uh, Yeah. Tell me, like, tell me about well your first because I missed your race. Yeah, that's right. I don't know where I was or what I was doing. You were probably out doing something, and I have to admit, I so give me the give me the race debrief. Well, here's the thing: is that our friend Christian had decided to start racing. And he hadn't raced in 15 years. And he is a bad influence. Right. Because he's he's got you in racing and he's got me like, oh, I guess I got to go racing Right. Now. So Christian is my uh, fellow Alta regional rep, but he's a serv- sales rep and I'm a service rep for the Northwest. And we worked together at Moto Corsa. He was a salesperson there. And when I was racing, he sponsored me as Speedy Moto because he was making uh, go fast parts one for Ducati. One right? of the founders of Speedy Moto. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So he's he's a he's a storied, interesting person in the Portland realm or in motorcycles in general. So he starts racing, and I have to admit, I was a little burnt on my experience being a uh, a tech inspector at Omra, which is what we've talked about on the show, right? And I just was like, not really, yeah. eh, eh, whatever. So when he started racing, I went out to the track, hadn't been out there in a while, helped him out the first weekend, and as I'm out there doing it, I'm like, I mean, I miss this. Right. You do. You just miss it. It's it's sometimes it's easy if you're riding dirt bikes and you're riding long distance touring stuff and your cup is filled with other things. You forget about it. But I get out there and I'm watching him. He has he's immediately fast and and he's out there as a quote unquote novice and he's beating up on a good portion of the field in the expert class. He's like podium. Yeah, he's on the podium on the regular. Yeah. And it was like, all right, that's that's we all knew that he would be. I don't think he knew he wasn't sure, but he had to do the thing. He's racing a cripple triple, a Yamaha R6 that's been crippled to run as of basically a 450. So I'm watching that. I'm like, hmm, you know, I think in my 848 that's sitting in the garage, that's my race bike. Haven't ridden it in years. I don't be, be mainly because it's expensive. I mean, the bike is probably four hours away from being prepped and ready and done. It's not that far away from being a, a riding fine thing. It's just, 
I think of going out and I think of how much money I'll have to spend and tires and whatnot just to just to go race at that level, going those speeds on that bike. And I'm just haven't done it. So, but going out there and seeing a few of my friends, especially Hannah, which I, I we talked about on one of the recent podcasts, uh, Hannah doing it and like kind of infectiously, like I'm seeing the Ninja 250s and I've always watched them. I've always had friends involved. I used to race 125 two strokes. So I know what being on the smaller bikes with momentum is like. I haven't done it in a long time. And watching her do it and thinking about that, I am like, you know what? Maybe it would be all right. And then looking around and ending up finding Adam and then going and doing that six hour and riding the bike and finding that the bike was pretty comfortable. Like, that's okay. I can do that. It's not too crunchy. I'm a big, I've turned into going from a 140 pound 125 racer that was six foot tall and like a string bean to now being 180 pound probably shouldn't be on a 250, but I'm going to do it anyway, racer, right? So yeah, I'm leaving a lot on the table in this tummy, but I don't care. I'm going to try and do this. And I wanted to get sharp again because it there's a skill set that comes with riding slow bikes fast that you can't get by riding big yes. bikes. Yes. And, and we're going to talk about that a little bit I later know, in the show. I know because that, that yeah. right, it is, it's of note. So I decided that after, especially after the, uh, the, uh, the six hour, I'm like, oh, I can do this. I'm going to buy this bike. So Adam, it's going to sell me this bike. So I buying the bike, I bought the bike and I go out and do the thing. I entered <clears throat> whatever classes I could, or just a couple of them just to cut my teeth and get uh, used to it. Um, had a, had an immediate, I was, I was fairly quick, but not at the same level as Hannah and another, there was another guy and I can't remember his name. I wasn't comfortable immediately, but I was easing into it. And I went through the weekend without a crash, which is of note because I'm a I'm a crasher. <laughs> You're a I crasher. Could, I could throw it down. I didn't at the six hour, and I had a good feeling there. But I didn't this weekend. I I, I like I said, I had opted to put a, the set of new R11 Bridgestones on it that were uh, DOT tires instead of slicks. I'll give it a try. And they're made. I think they're made for that KTM or the KTM RC390. That's my guess is that that's what their their focus is is those uh, bikes. And I don't know. Uh, they partnered with Yamaha for that launch, so we weren't invited. Oh, really? <clears throat> yeah, really. Br- Bridgestone with the R3? Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, they had a whole lineup. R3, R6, R1, FC10. They did a whole thing at Miller Motorsports Park. Bridgestone did? Bridgestone did, but in conjunction, in partnering with Yamaha. Ah. Oh, so you weren't allowed. So you you, you weren't invited. Ah, weird. Okay, so bottom line is they were fine, but they never gave me the confidence at all. I just... I went quick, but not fast enough. I think I ended up third in the Ninja 250 race. And like there was a, a race that they have called Lightweight Superbike with all the R3s and KTMs, which are way faster. But you enter it just so you have track time. And I think I ended up like 10th or something. And was, There's like a race within a race. It was. And yeah. I was totally alone once I got into, once I passed one R3 that was not on the fast side of R3s. I just kind of rode around in the race where um, I ended up third. I blasted through, passed a lot of people on the brakes. It was a chicane weekend, which at PIR is of note. PIR is a nine-turn, fairly simple race course with a very long front straightaway. On certain weekends for smaller bikes, and I think it's anything below the 600 class, they run this chicane they call the festival curves. It's what's used when IndyCar comes here. So it's like maybe three quarters of the way down the front straight, maybe maybe halfway down the front straight, yeah. there's a, a quick left, right, left uh, situation, or sorry, right, left, right. So that was good to, to be on the small bike. It's kind of sketchy. It, I like it. I thought it was fun. It's yeah. good. Every time, I've only done it a couple times, and 
the exit out of the chicane, I feel like because you almost you you almost kind of hit the you're on the gas finally on the exit and you're just now tipping it right back in to make turn one. And that always feels like really like a sketchy, a sketchy little place. I don't know. I had a couple of close calls when I ran it there. Um, that's slower, why they run, they'll run the big bikes there. Because if yeah. you came out of that and high sided, you'd you be, were, yeah, not in a good you're way. You're going into the fence or wall or whatever's yeah. out there. So yeah. they don't do it. Fair enough. Okay. Um, I was actually part of a crew of people that went and rode it back in like 2013 and well before the season to just test it out. That was back when I was racing more and it was me and the pink staffs and Andy Debrino and I think Devin McDonough, and we went out and rode it uh, for, you know, a morning just to say, okay, this is where we're at. Here are the points, the break points, and the acceleration points. It's funny, the first lap of practice, first lap, I get behind, it turns out, one of the faster people, I can't remember the person's name, I get behind him, and I'm flowing along through the rest of the track, and we get on the front straight away, and he gets a way better drive out on turn through turn nine, but I am a a pretty good drafter. So I'm drafting them and I'm drafting them. I'm coming up on them. I pull out and I'm, my mind is in normal track mode. But when I pull out, there's a bunch of cones and I have to reel that in and I blow right through it. Like I pass him on the inside and then, Oh, you're on non chicane, non chicane. (laughs) And I, my brain was on non chicane. So when the chicane came up, I had to, so I was like first lap. I'm like, well, I got that over with. (laughs) And I, I uh, didn't take that person out. I, I felt bad for it though, but it was a, you know, shit happens. You make a mistake, but that was gnarly. But luckily it's kind of like turn one at the California speedway where they have a chicane put in place to take you off the track. If you blow it, then okay, then you can just get back on track. It's not like you blow it and go to a wall. You'll come back around eventually. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So yeah, good time, uh, a great weekend. Didn't go as fast as I wanted right off the bat, but I was easing in. I'm not, as as the 41-year-old Q, I'm just not really bothered. I'm like, all right, if if this is fun and cool, then I'll keep into it. So I called up my friends at Woodcraft. I got some rear sets. Um, I got some armor bodies, body work. I just got that in. I just more got a fuel tank from some used fuel tank somewhere so I can, you know, make a nice, you know, paint it up nicely. And anyway, I'm, I'll get into it, make it bitchin', run it for the rest of the season, see how it goes. But it's, is it, is it something I want to do forever? No, I can tell you right now, I don't necessarily, I'm not, I'm not like, this is all I'm going to do. I'm going to race Ninja 250s. It's just what a cool thing to go into. And let me tell you, it's cheap. It's really cheap. Yeah. All the parts are cheap. Yeah. Everything I'm used there's to. There's no shortage of, of eBay, Craigslist No, there's parts, not. And also, though, the the bits and pieces, like a set of rear sets from Woodcraft, I think are, it's retail 250 Like, that's not normal. And then the bodywork was, it's like retail 700 for everything. And you know what I mean? Shit like that, where I'm used to probably 25% more of, uh, of every single thing, if not more than that. So the Ducati world's Ducati world, right? I, I've become desensitized to cost because of that. But that also means when I go to a cheaper thing, I'm like, whoa, this is awesome, right? And then tires. Apparently those tires, if I, if I kept at it and everybody ended up running like seven PSI more than I was running. So that's just a PSI deal. Most of it, as far as getting the grip level right and the feel of them right and whatnot. So not hacking on the R11, it's just it was. I don't think I had the setup right yet. But apparently, those tires would probably last me half the season. Yeah, I was gonna say you probably right? run all season. Exactly. Yeah. Well, not all season, but half the season on the on at least the rear. So uh, cheap racing, and that's really cool. So we'll see how this goes. Not sure which race weekend I'll make next. 
I don't think I'm going to make the one in July, but whatever. I'll, we'll, we'll talk about it next time I do it and hopefully it'll be good. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be curious to see how your season progresses throughout the rest of the year. Sure. If, even if I do it really, to be honest with you, what I'm more excited about is the idea that I might be able to escape the cold gray wetness of here in the winter and go race CVMA down in uh, the LA area. Right. So that, that makes me stoked just to think of, okay, cheap, easy to transport, no problem bike, head down there, go have some fun. Right. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I'm more of a go race other tracks and get out and do cool things than just saying, okay, I'm going to race all of the Elmer season. Yeah, that's just not my jam right now. It's a lot of PIR. It is. On a little bike. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'll say this. I did the track day the week before. I'd never do that again. Not on that bike. Unless unless you had 10 of your friends all on Ninja 250s to go do the track day all at once. Then like, it, like, like a little herd together. That would be the only way to do it. You know? bees. You heard? Yeah. No go. Because right. just closing speeds and people blasting you. That, that, and I'm fine with it, but you feel like you're in the way of people. And then when you do get to the corners and you're going faster than them and it's just super frustrating. Um, so there's, just, there's just no part that's good. No. And you can't take the line you need to take because you're in the way if you do, like dangerously in the way, right? You're trying to hug the inside. It's not, it's just not cool. And if you happen to be alone, it is painful. They're so, it's very slow on a long straightaway. Now, if it was ORP out in Eastern Oregon, then no problem. I'd do that all day long because it would be constant. You know, you're, you're, you're working, but not at PIR. Yeah. Hmm. So there's that. What's next? What, what we have so many things. Do you want to keep talking and tell us about Pike Speak or do you want to go and talk a little bit about Kramer's? We should do the Kramer thing. Okay. Kramer, right? Kramer, 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 Kramer. So I saw on Instagram a couple weeks ago that you were out on the Kramer. Yeah. And this is, we talked about this last show. It's a KTM 690 motor, bespoke chassis, bodywork, 280-something pounds wet, roughly 80 horsepower at the crank, bespoke race bike, track bike. Yeah. Rad. Yeah. So I saw you, you got, so we, I went and took some pictures a little while ago, but you actually got to go out on a track day with it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I'm so jealous right now. And then I just got back from Laguna Seca on it. So why don't you tell me your experience and we'll compare notes. All right. So uh, same day I was on the Ninja. Um, Ninja, please. Ninja, please. I, <clears throat> I, again, only went out a little bit on that bike. And then uh, our good friend, Andrew Pignatero, had that bike out there. Anybody that wanted to test ride it, it's kind of a cool thing. They're, they know they need to get people on the seats, right? They got to get asses on seats. So he had it out there and I'm like, yeah, I'd like to try that. I'm <clears throat> interested enough in it that I would like to do that. So I went and just did a few laps. Of course, I wanted to do an out lap, fast lap, in lap, but I ended up staying out for longer because it's rad, right? Super good. A little too good for B group. Like I was in a, I decided to go out in B group because it isn't that fast. And I didn't want to go out and be, again, a rolling chicane for the A group. So I got in B group and I'm immediately comfortable. I'm immediately comfortable on the bike. Like super stoked on it, did nothing wrong. And this was the bike that had the base model. It was like the standard. So it had the single, sting, single front caliper brake. Right. And, the standard wheels, not the lightweight wheels. No quick shifter. No quick shifter. But it has the R motor, which makes which runs on race gas and makes 80 horsepower. Is that the deal? Okay. Yeah. So it was plenty fast and it was really interesting where, and this is probably why I pulled off, because I get behind somebody on an 848. That's in a B group rider, so not not super fast. And I get all up on their buns going through the twisty section on the front straightaway. 
we pull out and they, of course they don't get a, a great drive, but they get a good enough drive and I'm drafting them. And it took until the start finish line, which is like, this is a three quarter of a mile's front straight. It's a long way. So I get to the start finish line before the A48 starts finding its legs. And I was like, that's amazing. Like this thing was able to draft that thing until it really came on the pipe. And then I was able to get close enough still to threshold break past that a 48 going into turn one so that was really cool for me so you know i'm not in a race scenario with an a 48 it wouldn't be me on the a 48 but it was of note that the thing was that fast and that arrow that it would be able to, to handle the draft i was like fuck that's cool and it and it accelerated pretty nicely it feels really good it's tall it's a weird tall right but not once you get on it and start riding it that kind of disappears you feel it in the beginning but not much not enough for me to be worried about the fact that I've been riding around on that tall, ninja physically not tall gearing. No, yeah, physically. Yes. Like it's up in the air. It's not what I would call the perfect blend of GP bike and four stroke. If if it was up to me, I'd probably try and make it lighter and tighter. But that's a big tall engine and they're having to fit a bunch of shit in there. So I can't judge Kramer for why they have opted to make it look almost like a supermoto bike that you've taken road racing. Like many years ago there was a that's uh, super mono. The super singles class yeah. or whatever they were trying to get going to make dirt bikes in the and they didn't do that mainly because those engines just wouldn't last. They, they would just blow the fuck up. They're not made to go road racing for the that reason. Whereas this one actually feels like it's pretty good. It's got a counterbalanced engine, the newer style. Yep. Um, so that it's not vibey. It just No, pulls. really not vibey at all. Nope. It yeah. pulls and it has great sound and a great feel. And I found that it was very linear in the power. Super. Uh, delivery yeah. like there wasn't really any any holes it wasn't like you hit red lines at 9500 it wasn't like you hit 6000 rpms and now you're in the power band now you're yeah. in the power it, it's pretty much even stevens all the way through um all the way through it which which i which is a little a little different but it's good um it's funny to hear you say like you were instantly fast on instantly quick cuz i had the exact opposite experience but I think that also goes back to kind of like our two backgrounds as riders. Like I'm, yeah. I'm a superbike guy, and my track bike's a superbike. And I was at Laguna Seca, which is a track I've only ridden on thousand cc bikes, and that's those are the lines I know, and that's the experience that I expect. And to then hop on a, you know, a momentum based bike. <laughs> yeah, a moment a bike that you're gonna have to manage the corner speed more with was yeah. was really different for me. I'd, it took me, well, my day was a bit of a quagmire. So Laguna Seca has this crazy noise restriction and it's 90 decibels, which is really low whisper quiet yeah. in, 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 motorcycle in, in race bike circles. Right. So we go out the first session and we get a few laps in and the entire session gets black flag for noise violations, which like everybody which, that's out there. I mean, at that point it's just kind of dumb. Cause it's like, I guess it was like two or three guys that were just perpetual and you're like, well, tell us who those are like if that's me i want to know so i can do something about it don't yeah, just so they did everybody don't just black flag everybody and bring us all in but that's what they did second session i'm a little late to get out to the um to the start of the session so it wasn't like pre-graded up and by that point they were saying they had too many bikes on the grid so we had to sit in pit lane for about five minutes and wait for us to to get on i go out and i get my second lap and i get meatballed and I come back in, they're like, you're 97 decibels. And this is with the long pipe on. Oh, wow. 
Right, I was about to ask. So I think when you bef- wrote it, you had that shorty underbelly nubbin exhaust. No, no? I, I think he had that, but I, I'm not going to lie. I don't remember. I know that I didn't was notice it. So yeah, I'll say that. so I know that was the thing at PIR was that nubbin exhaust, this undertail exhaust that most of the Kramers come with. That's made by a crop. It's not even undertail. It's underbelly. Underbelly. Exits right at You're the right. Belly. Sorry, I'm saying undertail. It's underbelly. Yeah. yeah. Um, that was having the issue at PR, which does have some sound issues, but not nearly as bad as as Laguna Seca. Sure. And so Kramer made these long exhausts that are fine at PIR. Well, apparently that's no bueno at, at Laguna. And I'm seven decibels over, so I end up having to not downshift into turn five manage the revs at about 5,000 RPMs up the hill to the furthest away from the sound thing as I can while other guys on stock pipes are doing closing speeds that are two, three times my own. This is going up a hill, which is super unsafe all the way up to turn six. And then I can get on the gas at turn six. But by that point I've lost all my momentum. I'm basically not racing from or not riding hard from turn five all the way to the top of the corkscrew, which is just dumb. Yeah. Where which is you need it the most. Where you need it the most, which is disappointing, but that's life at Laguna Seca. What can you do about it? Sure. But for me, managing that corner speed and all that, it really took me a while. I wasn't until like the third session where I got a full session. I was like, okay, now I'm starting to find my my turning points. Now I'm starting to find my shift points and where my gearing needs to be. And, and really where to get you on don't it. need to break, where you... You know no. where you would normally break. No, and that's the fun. That was so. That was a funny thing. So I to, to Tarantino my track day at Laguna Seca because I don't want to get too far away to it. I finished on an HP4 race. <laughs> yeah, you know, two hundred and twenty sure. horsepower, like the old superbike, carbon this and carbon that yeah. bike. Yeah, and so you know, most the joke is at, at Laguna if you're on a superbike, you know, you don't let off the throttle for turn one. But that is a true test of your moral fortitude because it is one of the scariest turns, I think, yeah, in America. Yeah, for sure. Because it's blind. Oh, yeah. It's a little off camera. It, but it's, it's, it was gnarly enough on an A48, like properly prepped A48. It's gnarly to do that. You have to have a lot of faith in in your bike and your machine and your capability and that you have put yourself on the exact correct line yeah. to hit that turn without rolling off the throttle. On the Kramer, it's not so much of an issue. No. You can pin it the whole way through. I'm basically on the gas up until the, um, what do you call it? The curbing coming into turn one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, because your closing speed's completely yeah, because the closing speed's totally different. It's it's yeah, it's a totally different line. I actually thought I would like to try the bike with the dual brake setup, the the R spec, because I actually was hoping for a little bit more braking from that front disc than it gave. I, I would have liked more braking power. Yeah. I That's would, my jam. I, I was stoked with it as it was. I mean, even going into turn one at Portland, but I wasn't racing. So it felt great to me. Maybe, maybe pad changes or maybe a little bit larger of a disc. That would be how I would do it. I'd rather. Well, it's already a 320. I mean, how much yeah, larger do you want to go? 330. So 330. You, you put the Ducati 330 on it and that way you would not have to have that extra rotating mass, which is huge on a, on a bike like that to have that extra rotor. I'm, it might be necessary, but for 280 pounds, I'll, I'll, I would try and optimize that one side. That's how I would roll it. If I own the bike, I would probably opt for that. I wouldn't mind seeing the difference because it's dual 290s versus a single 320. Maybe a 330 makes the difference. Maybe it's different pads. Yeah. I would definitely want to play around. I, I want a little bit more braking force. That's my jam. But the power, I like the power. I was chasing down a couple 
were they nine five nines or eight nine nines? It's hard to tell from the rear. Whatever, yeah. No, obviously, I think a lot of that was rider. I don't think that was bike. But I was trying to chase them down. I was like, I was surprised. Like, I am keeping up with these guys. Wasn't going to get around them. Yeah. But wasn't losing on them either. Yeah. Uh, definitely caught a few R sixes by surprise. Laguna is a great track for that. I was. Oh yeah. I have no doubt in my mind. I was the fastest bike through the corkscrew. No doubt in my mind. That sure. thing flicked so good and felt so good through there. And you loaded it up. And you're just on the gas from the bottom of the course screw all the way till turn. What is it? That final right hand is that turn nine, turn 10, 11, something like that. Right hander before you could not the one, the left hander before you come into the straight. Oh yeah. The right hander before that. Yeah. Which um, one's rainy. Rainy is, is the, the one coming nine. down the hill. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. felt great through rainy. Made a I lot bet. of, made a lot of good passes. I in rainy. That's where it would just be. It would, like shit to a shag car but stuck yeah that that was the thing like after all the disappointment coming up to the top of the course screw losing all my drive and all my momentum and getting blasted by so many dudes phrasing are we not doing phrasing um it could have been coming coming down the course women there had to be women out there you could be blasted by women down that but that doesn't that's not the phrasing joke oh no it would be the phrasing you could get pegged down there for sure (laughs) blasted blasted no, nah. moving along, <laughs> moving along, sir. Um, but yeah, coming down the corkscrew through turn 10, nine, that right-hander, I was, that was fast. That was, that was one of the really enjoyable sections. The bike handles really well. Um, it goes where you point it, has no issue getting from one side to the other. Everything about it's light and right. Yeah. That's what it, it's strangely, especially as it lives two, up to the hype. It does. And, and as a two stroke enthusiast, I shouldn't be as stoked on it as I am, but I think I've told, I've said this before in the podcast, I wrote a, one of those super singles, a Yamaha 450 built by Stuart Carter, who's a, a kind of a well-known classic bike racer out of the Midwest. And I wrote it at road America, which is like the last place you'd want to ride a 450 single. It's really wide open and fast. I had a blast on it and it was very similar to this where you're like, this shouldn't work as fucking awesome as it does, but it does. It's really fun. It's very engaging. It's very enjoyable. So if you're, especially if you're thinking about, okay, what I normally race, which would be 600 CC class or a 48 ish kind of not quite a super bike, but fast, really fast, have to be careful with the throttle to then 125s and say this Ninja 250 and then getting on this weird, weird in between bike. I loved it. I thought it was great. It would, it's kind of the, the balance between the two. Like, obviously, I was saying, I'm not super stoked on the 250 because it doesn't give you the same, like, you have to be in a pack of people hauling ass to get the, the rush, to get the feeling of racing fast. But if you're on the six, the, the, the Kramer, you could, I could be having fun all by myself because I'm, I'm able to, to do a bunch of the different things that I want as far as braking and acceleration and mid-corner speed to work on it to try and go faster. So I like that a lot. But then when you add the racing aspect of it, I can't imagine how cool it is. So it, I'd like to get on it. I'd love to be able to race one. It turned a lot of heads. I, I had to spend a lot of time in the paddock. I bet. Uh, explaining what it was to people yeah, and people looking at it and poking it. Yeah, people were definitely stoked to see that bike. I definitely would like to spend. So I was I was telling this to someone the other day. Like, it's hard to come across bad bikes these days. Yeah, sure. we've kind of figured out how to make good bikes. Good bikes happen a lot, you know. And I think sometimes people get a little upset when journalists are like, "Oh, we don't never see bad reviews anymore." It's like, yeah. well, it's because 
Everything's pretty 99% darn good. of the bikes that you get on are good. Yeah. You know, we've figured out chassis engineering. We figured out what our geometries need to be in power. We figured out fuel injection. We know yeah, it. Sure. We've made good. Pretty much all the brands make good suspension. Pretty much all the brands make good brakes. Especially when it comes to the sport bike land. Because it's not like you're going to get on the Yamaha XSR whatever piece of shit horrible bikes that those are horrible because they're a design ethos that's not even close to being like a true rider's bike. Whatever that. But what was that well, bike that they came out with the dirt with a kind of like. Oh, the SCR 950. That, what, and, and it's funny you bring that up. We were at a press launch uh, not too long ago and all the journalists were getting a little. We had, a, we had an extra day, so everyone's drinking and having a good time. We're having a memory, and we go like, all right, around the table, best bike you ever been on, worst bike you ever been on. Yamaha SCR 950 is was was kind of a consensus of worst bike. Yeah. But even then, you're like, it's not that bad of a bike. It's just that it's a Yamaha Bolt with all this bolt-on shit to make it look like a scrambler. And the reality is it's you know not one of the better metric cruisers in general and then it's got like half an inch of ground clearance yeah. and it's not comfortable sure. and you're just like this is literally just an aesthetic operation and it, yeah, it's not gross. even that well executed and you're just no, like this sure. is just it's just but that's that, what that, makes that's, it that's one of those rare things like this is not a good bike yeah I wouldn't say it's a horrible bike, but it's not a good bike. It's yeah. not anywhere well, That's close. why I'm it up because that's one of the ones right. one of the few right it's one of the few the, of the past 10 years that I can think of like Wow, that is awful, right? right? And and I remember saying at the table, people were like, "Oh yeah, that is one of, like the few, like sure. you know." And it's almost like the Suzuki Gladius, where you know what? Maybe if you could ignore how if achingly you, ugly yeah. it is, then you would think back to the SV650. But I think it actually went away from being as good as an SV650 because of some of the choices they made with the bike. That's another one that I'd be like, "Ugh," right? There's a few of them. Yeah, out there. but the Gladius was just ugly. Like the roots of it still had a good chassis, it still had a good motor. You know, it still like did the things pretty well. Like you don't really find like bad problems. Now, where I was going with that is the real test, though, is how often you come across a great bike. And for me, the the real way of telling that is is there's some bikes that get off like they're like yeah that was cool I'm glad I rode that right on cool thanks and then there's bikes you're like I don't I don't want to have to get this bike back yeah yet. sure I want to ride this again I want to go do another session I want to go, go to go this track or that track do or, another trip right, yeah, or sure. do another you know ride or you know, yeah. I, I need more time on this bike I want more time on the bike the Kramer's like that the yeah. Kramer's like oh I want to do another there's a track day this weekend at the Ridge. Another track up here in we Washington. Make it happen. And I was, uh, and I was kind of like, well, you know, maybe, maybe I should hold on to this bike a little <laughs> bit longer. Maybe I don't know. And and then we got a track day coming up at PIR, and I was talking, I was talking to our buddy Andy. And I was like, hey, well, maybe I can take it out again there. Like when you're kind of like trying to horse trade your way back yeah. onto it, that's a sign that there's something good there. Yeah. So I think Kramer did a really good job. It's really cool to see this bike kind of starting to get picked up and recognized some more. Sixteen grand for the base model for the S model. Uh, 21 for the R. It's very intriguing. Like if you're going to take, so this, this would compete against like an SV650, FZ07, Cripple Triple R3s. Uh, what else are in that racing class? Cripple Triple R6s. Sorry, yeah. Cripple Triple R6s. I don't know. It depends on the racing organization. That's the yeah. problem. It's not some, like. Some of them have super single. Like that was yeah. the thing. This was built for the Europe's super single class. Yeah. Which is kind of like a weird little thing in so its own. So, in a lot of club racing, you, they just find a way to stuff it in wherever and figure out where it's competitive. And at PIR, 
it isn't as competitive, say, when they run the full configuration without the chicane, but then all of a sudden with the chicane, it gets it closer. You know, it definitely does to the to the times of the SVs and other middleweight superbikes, yeah, right? The, so that's really cool. At Laguna, Laguna is like the perfect track for that bike, I, I think, in a lot of ways. And I mean, I, I, I embarrassed a Super Duke 1290. I embarrassed a number of R6s. Sure. Not, you know, and I don't know how much of that is, you know, who's on the bike kind of thing, but... You know, it, it held its own quite well. I was impressed. Yeah, it's not going to be the fastest thing on the track. No, doubt. but sure, it it holds the beans. It's it's just unique enough and cool enough that it, you can have something special if you've got the extra coin. And like I look at it, and I was I was talking to someone who was literally poopy about the price and like the whole. He was just like, "This is just dumb. It's just expensive." And I was like, no, "Well, no, it's not. You build a race bike yeah, out of an R six. That's what Go, I'm saying. Right and now, this is someone you, that 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 runs a, a race team." And I was like, "Okay." So your team's going to run in the twins class next year. Yeah. And you're going to race in an FZ07. How much is that going to cost you? You know, so easily 20 grand to do it right to do it well. So that bike, right? you know, it's, I, I forget what 15, FZ07 out yeah. the door. Yeah. Normally it's, well, they're cheap. They're like seven, nine hundred, nine thousand, something like that. Yep. Somewhere in that range. So you got yep. that and then you're going to have to swap out all the suspension, all the wheels, everything, do the body work. Sure. Get a power commander on it. Get it ready for race gas, do all the jams. Make similar, probably make a little bit more horsepower, weigh probably 50 pounds more, yeah. 75 pounds more. Sure. And by the time you're done, how much is that costing you? Well, okay, you're in the same ballpark. So let's not really think that it's that crazy on pricing. And and some person would still argue, oh, I could still do it cheaper. And you could, but you're the person in the mid middle of the pack with a banged up, smashed up, bag of smashed assholes, ugly, gnarly bike that's probably not safe. And on, on straight up, that's like, I can I can uh, profile that type of, of racer because that happens a lot. And it's just like, yeah, show me somebody that's at the front end of the pack that doesn't have that $20,000 bike, right? Mm-hmm. Now, in that twins class now, you've got a very interesting situation where nobody in the factories has come in yet. Not mm-hmm. a lot of other people have, have dived into that. They're, and the grid size is small. It's small. So right now, you could go in there and, and do some damage, which is something I'll bring up later on when we start talking about Pike's Peak. Um, I'm ready to transition to Pike's so Peak. So here it is. So Pike's Peak, interesting dynamic. So, so let's back it up. You're there on the mountain. I've done I've done Pikes Peak a number of times. You've done Pikes. I think we met at Pikes Peak. Yeah, we actually. did. Absolutely. Yeah. You were there this year playing wrench monkey to Michael Woolway with his ridiculous hypermotard, which you can't even call that a hypermotard. Come on. No. Yeah. That's so all right. Here's the deal. Michael Woolaway um from Deus. Ex Machina. Ex Machina. It's not Deus, it's Deus. Right? Deus. It's it's Deus. Latin. Yeah. Um it's not go- Deuce. No. That's just wrong. Deuce. Deus. Yeah. I need to go for a deuce. Means ghosts of the machine. Ghost in the machine, right? Or ghost of the machine, whatever. Okay. So ghost of the machine. It's a lifestyle company that started in Australia <laughs> building bikes and then making um, gear and shit. But then it very much quickly transcended into mostly t-shirts and just lifestyle stuff, right? So they have an outpost in Venice Beach. Um in LA and they it's a cafe slash place where you can buy gear mostly kind of it kind of blends between surfer skater and motorcycle lifestyle yeah. I would say yeah Michael who is an old friend from the late 90s early 2000s of mine when I worked at the Ducati shop up in uh, Pro Italia up in Glendale 
I've known him for that long because he used to be this rad dude that would come in and have all kinds of rad bikes. I think I met him when he brought in a 750 F1B to have the carbs tuned up or something. I, I, it was a weird deal. Then you'd watch him. He was racing at the time, a wood Rotax um, single at, uh, in, uh, at Willow Springs motorcycle club that had TZ 250 body work on it. This is a super rare um, Rotax twin cam engine thing. And he, he was fucking fast on it. Right. So he would almost be doing 250 lap times, 250 grand pre lap times of the era on this big old gnarly four stroke strangest story is that his he sold that bike through pro italia my parents next door neighbor completely separate from this buys it in central texas in college station texas and i find out about it as a technician at the shop oh he's got this person that's buying it out of a place called college station you know, yeah that's where i'm from oh yeah this guy named john whiting oh that's that's my parents next door neighbor right <laughs> so really strange story very long this was back in like 2000 2001 so we kept in contact i think he saw that or he knew that i had a lot of um a pike speak experience as a mechanic from my ducati days so i've been up in the hill now four times in the past eight years um first with what, what whatever you'd call the ducati team that went up the first time with the Multistratas back in 2010. Then with Mart Cernicki from Cycle World when he rode a Multistrata from LA out there and then we prepped right. it and he and Right, he and that was the year it. you and I met. Yeah, that must have been it. Where he qualified second and then had a tire issue and, and crashed in the race because the tire went flat. Then 2015, when I helped Jamie Robinson with kind of like the Ducati service team, we went up there and helped him get up the hill. Uh, again, on a bike, I think he was supposed to have ridden but he rode a multi out there, and then we had this one that's right. kind of race prepped. It was basically the next year's model bike that we had to kind of be quiet about, that it was actually you know the thing that was going to come out the following year, and we just had it there. So I have a lot of experience going up there. And I'll be like, like well, who cares? That doesn't really matter. It's just going up to, you know, it's a hill climb. Well, there's a lot of nuances of it, not the least of which is the practice leading up to the race the week before, hmm. which for the longest time would happen on – uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, because you only do one section of the mountain. It's a 12 mile course. They divide the mountain into thirds. Yeah. Yeah. Ish. It's ish. like they divided it one half. Three and then, groups. Yeah. yeah. One, one half of the mountain in the, and at the base, at the base, and then kind of like two quarters at the top. Right. And so you have to go up there at three in the morning, set up go at almost first light. I think we've the, the first ride up, which is kind of like a sighting ride, happens at like 5.15. Then as soon as there's enough light, then, then you just send them up. And it takes probably about 40 minutes each, each time for them to get up and down. And you can only go until about 8.30, right? That's it. So once everybody's done, you get off the hill. And this way, because this is a city park or own the mountain is owned by the city, they charge 15 bucks a pop to get up the top. So they want their money and they want all the tourists at the height of tourist season to be able to drive, you know, pay their 15 bucks a pop and go up the mountain at nine o'clock in the morning. So that's kind of sets the stage for how bizarre it is to get up at 2.30 so that you can get up to, up the hill and be prepared and try and get tire warmers on at, I think the the first spot you're at is at 9,600 feet. I mean, the warmest it gets is like 55 degrees, and that's what it was. It was actually quite warm this year. But then when you're at Devil's Playground, which I can't remember, it's like 13,000 feet, maybe. Close to it. Whatever yeah. it is. It's above 11,000. You're, 
it's cold. It's you know? really cold. Uh, right? And it's windy. Yeah, and and it's windy. And yeah. so the, you you can't keep enough heat in the tires to really get these people safely up. But I mean, I guess it's just up to them to be safe, right? To be to to be meter out the speed and not try and do stupid shit. And unfortunately, that's had its consequences. We had the uh, the death on the hill back in 2015. Carl Sorensen, that was in the practice. And that was that day at the top of the hill when it's the coldest and he, he slid off, right? So it's gnarly and it's not it's not for the faint of heart. You have to dedicate a lot of time to it. Luckily, Alta was good enough to allow me to go do this thing. I mean, half the battle was though, like after all that's said and done, you go home, you go Things for a nap. the day. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a nap and then I went and did dealer visits. Yeah, I try to explain like, I say like, this is my... <laughs> least favorite event yeah. in the world for motorcycling part of it is the shenanigans that come with pikes peak and the organizers and the car people and the stupidity and the lack of safety and all that jazz but the other half is you got to wake up at 2 30 you get your butt up you know you're you're slogging it out freezing cold windy miserable altitude sickness dehydration <laughs> Then you come down the mountain, like you said, you take a nap, and then you kind of like, it's 9 a.m., I guess I'll start my day now, yeah. and I slam out five more stories and crash at you know, 6 p.m. and do it all over again. Yeah. It's brutal. It is so hard. And then and so, it's so hard, and there's no communication on the mountain. Nothing, there's right? no cell phone service. Yeah. So when you get home, when yeah. you get in to finally get cell, then all of a sudden it's a it's a deluge of, yeah. of communication. Everyone, right? yeah. yeah. Everybody wants to know what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a tough part of it. Uh, for me, yeah, the safety. And I was talking about one of my good... One of my good friends who's been my technician when I can have him, a guy named Eric Nicolulis. Eric Nicolulis is what we call him. We were chatting about this after the race, and he was like, you know, I, you know, I've been to Macau with Mark Miller. I've been, uh, you know, a lot of really gnarly races, but like these road races, these street, the ones where that are very dangerous. I was with Mark Miller this weekend. Were you really? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, good dude. Yeah, yeah, we rode together. It was, little, it was cool. I only got. I only stayed behind him a couple yeah, turns. Yeah, super fast. <laughs> He's an impressive rider. Yeah. And a, a very cerebral person, interesting person to hang out he with. keeps thinking I'm Asian. Whatever. I'm like, I'm 6'2". Well, you can, you can be tall. <laughs> and I don't look Asian. <laughs> I'm wonder. super white. I'm Danish. Huh. His 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 racial or ethnic... Um, barometer is yeah. not right. It's, it's this needle not pegging. He's right. not good at okay. that. Like okay. he would not get a job at ancestry.com. <laughs> that is never going to be a sponsor for okay, him. That is enough. just, I'm sorry, Mark. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Good dude though. Right. Other yeah. than, yeah, his, yeah, his I like Mark a lot. I, I, whenever I, I don't see him too often at press launches. And when I do, I'm always really stuck. Cause it means that we're gonna have a good time. Yeah. And we, we were uh, all together when he came, I think it was the Aprilia. Uh, yes, yes, right? yes, yes. That's so right. That's I right. got to yeah, uh, good time. hang hang out with him then. Anyway, so talking with Eric about it, he was talking about how he just doesn't like to be at any place where you have to be happy when the rider comes mm. home alive. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. That's I mean that and that that rung very true for me. Cause yeah. when you let the person go, and this in this case it was letting Mike Woolaway go on a Ducati hyper motard that had been taken apart and then an 1198 RS engine that was formerly in Carlos Checa's bike had been stuffed back into the frame. And then Michael himself, who is a, um, I would say one of the highest level fabricators in the nation, fabricates his own fuel tank and subframe and bits and pieces to go to make this kind of weird amalgamation work. You're, you're letting that person go and you're going through every bolt and nut that you just touched and you're you're thinking about what all the 
different failure modes of all the different things that could happen. And you've got, frankly, even if his run is only 12 minutes or 11 minutes or whatever, you're not going to get word of it immediately because the time in scoring is such a cluster because it's very difficult to figure out all that stuff for this for these people, apparently. So you're sitting there and just stressed because not whether the person's going fast. I could give a flying fuck whether he was going to go and beat whatever or do whatever. It's just you just want them to get to the top of the hill. Say, yeah. Right. And when you and, know that you're doing all that work at altitude, which affects your brain ability, yeah. at sleep deprivation, especially yeah. day three, uh huh. at, you know, yeah. super freezing cold where you can't feel the fingers yeah, in your yeah, hand. Yeah, sure. You and I had had a conversation um, when I was driving back up and I was likening it to the TT for me. Well, and Pikes Peak, but when I go and cover a race from, I'm like, I know when I go here, uh, there's a very high statistical chance, if not a, a statistical certainty, that I will report the the death of someone and I may see it myself in person. And there is a little bit of like, that's that's a weird, a weird little thing to it because that's not really the case when I go to a MotoGP race. That's not really the case when I go to the World Superbike race. And it adds like, it kind of like, you, if you let it fester in your mind, it can kind of tear you up a little bit. And it was interesting when I was last at the TT, I was talking to John Burroughs and I noticed that a lot of the TT racers, their mechanics never touched the the brakes. And he was telling to me like, you know, like a lot of the TT racers, they like to be the guys that work on the brake pads and especially or work on the brake system, especially when it comes to um, bleeding the brakes. And they want to be they want to be the one that's there that does the fluid that pumps the brake. And most importantly, is the one that pumps it back up to pressure. Yeah. Because then they know. They know that because worst case scenario, if the engine pops or something comes off, having that brake is is that is the difference between life and death. And they don't want to one put the responsibility of that on their mechanic and and like what you just described, have that mechanic where like, did I did I do that yeah. right? Did I do that thing? Oh my god, he died. That's my fault now. And two, they don't want to trust that responsibility to anyone but themselves and say, okay, I know that I did this myself. I put hands on it. I touched it. I visually inspect it. I know it's good. I know it's ready to go. Yeah. I have complete confidence in this machine. It's an interesting thing. Yeah. Well, imagine being the person doing it and right. having done it. Frankly, it was no different than when I would peel the tire warmer off of Eric Bostrom's bike and send him out on a super stock race especially at like Daytona or any one of the other he heavily dangerous tracks that are on a, uh, in the U S right. It's just, right. It, you'd ha I would have that all the time, every single race, anytime I'm letting anybody go this side of on a go-kart track or a dirt bike. Right. I still am just like, Oh, but Pike's peak, it's extra level. And you know, we were do we had a very interesting strategy. Most people, the bikes come in and this is in the practice sessions because you only get so many, right. When you got 40 minutes between and you're starting at 5.15 and it ends at 8.30, you don't have that many runs. Right. So you got to make them good. And you want, you know, the first couple are just going to be complete throwaways because it's cold. Then you want to be able to get it going. So Michael had a, he was like, we're just going to keep a set of wheels on warmers and then we're going to swap them every time you come in. You don't have that much time. So there's me saying, all right, I like that. Nobody else would ever do that. Everybody else wanted to get the bikes in, get them on the warmers, and then let them hold for as long as possible before going back up. 
And I, you know, I don't, I'm not too big of a fan of it. You would never get enough heat in the tires ever. So I was like, all right, I'm, this will be interesting to see. And if it, more important than anything, is just tuning the loose nut behind the bars. So making sure that the rider's happy. And if the rider had more confidence that the tires were warm because you were swapping the wheels, then so be it. And when you got a single-sided swing arm rear, Michael would attach, he would do the rear and I would do the front. And that's a lot of, you know, when you got four pinch bolts and an axle nut and um, four brake pad or brake caliper bolts, you know, you're, you're, you're spinning wrenches, right? You're doing the thing. And the first morning we out there, uh, he doesn't have any torque wrenches. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm okay with doing it like that. I'm fine with that. My confidence in my torque ability is good. But when I'm sending somebody up a motherfucking mountain like that, yeah. I don't, I want a goddamn torque wrench. So you want to know some Newton meters. I, I had brought my tools with me. And I, I, because you know what? No matter how high of the level of people I work with, no one ever has the tools that I want ever. So the most critical ones that I had in my bag were my air pressure gauge. Good thing. Cause he had left his down at the, at, at the shop. So I had my air pressure gauge because dude, your rear brains everywhere when you're doing this shit, that's why you have other people with you right? so that you can help kind of corral the bullshit. So I had my air pressure gauge, you know, which was a, you know, a regulated tested Dunlop at the Dunlop station. I know this thing has the right pressure gauge. I had my, um, uh, safety wire pliers, which are reversible. So they twist either way and they grab the wire with a kind of a, w- without putting dents in the wire, they, they kind of have, they're called tiger wave. They're awesome. So they smoothly hold they the wire. Tiger wave. Tiger wave. Yeah. Like, get them to sponsor the they're, they're super badass. Tiger wave. I've never seen another set there. This is all stuff from FAA certified things. Like if you're in a safety wire, it's usually because of airplanes. Cause that's where, you know, helicopters, airplanes, FAA stuff. Whereas on the racing, it's almost like, ah, damn it. I have to safety wire that shit where FAA it's like, no, I, I take a lot of responsibility for this. This is an if amazing thing. If that ball falls out, you fall You're, out yeah, of the sky. Yeah, there's dead. And that, I don't see it as any different in this situation, no, right? Same goes with most of the stuff on a, on, a, on a road race bike. I can go without safety wiring a bunch of the shit that you have to say with Omra. Do I need to have the brake caliber safety wired? No. I have a torque wrench. I know that those things are tight. But that's not what safety wire is mostly for. It's mostly just to say, I tighten those bolts. Right. Right. It's better than a that. thing of paint. Yeah. It's that I did that. Therefore, I'm putting the safety wire on and people have to they have to kind of get their head around that. No, it's not to prevent that that bolt from actually spinning out. It's just to kind of verify that you did the thing. Right. So I have those. And then I had my torque wrenches, which are Japanese Tonichi torque wrenches that I had had. This is all stuff that I you know, it's all from my days in, as an AMA tech. And so I was able to bring those in and use those and do it quickly. And it felt good. And it, then it felt right. As soon as I was able to torque out my stuff, I was like, okay, that, I feel better. Did it really matter? Not that much. But it's I'm a tuning loose nut behind the wrench, if you will. I had to be confident as well. And doing that, taking the brake pad, the calipers on and off with captured pads that, that one fell out one time and I had to get it back in there. And I'm like, Oof. it's stressful. It's just fucking stressful because this is the life of this dude. And... I don't know Michael that well, or I didn't before this trip. Now I know him really well after this trip because you spend a week day in and day out with a person basically. And then you get to see them at their highest level of stress. And especially somebody who is fastidious and talented enough to build their own bike from scratch, really, this side of the engine. Because he had to, this is the craziest thing. The way the rules are written, he had to have the VIN match the engine number That's when it come from the MSO. So he had to take the cases of the hyper, 
which are completely fucking different than what's a 1198RS, have them taken apart and have the whole motor reassembled with all the trick parts in it. Even in the exhibition class? Uh-huh. What? Well, so here's the deal. He does this. He goes through all of it because he wants to be right. And I, I don't know if he originally had intended to race maybe even the open class. I was going to say, like, if he was in the heavyweight class, well, that would kind of make sense. He knew that maybe he was going to come back, but either way, he was going to make sure that the, it was by the rules, right? So we get there and he's done this. And and who do they put in his class but an Aprilia SXV 550? And it was like, well, wait a second. That's, that's a production machine. There's one of those racing in the middleweight class with Davy Durrell, who's like a storied Pikes Peak runner, multi-time winner. So why is that in the exhibition class? That shouldn't even, it's not even close to being in the exhibition. There's not even partially. Whereas Woolies, you know, arguably it could be in the in the open class, but in the exhibition, it makes sense. It's yeah. a complete bits of bike. It could be in the exhibition. It looks like an exhibition. Right. It has wings on it and no fairing. Like it's it's an exhibition. I think bike. if I recall, the lightning ended up having to go into the exhibition yeah. class while the zeros were in like the electric class. Yeah. Right. And, and like, then uh, when Ronnie Sainer did it with the Triumph, he had Joe Cop riding. Oh, yeah. I was there that uh, year. Yeah, yeah. That was that year. Uh, and that was a speed triple, but it was pretty well modified. And they forced him to go in the exhibition class for some reason. Again, this all comes usually down to politics. Who is in the exhibition class? Who's trying to vie for the trophy? Then it's good old boy network, entrenched good old boy network calling the shots, right? I wouldn't call the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb corrupt, but it does have an element of that just fuckery where you're just like, the rule book, I think there is, I think if you look at the rule book, I think the final provision in the rule book is race direction reserves the right to basically do whatever we want at the end of the day. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because Michael had been, he was thinking, you know, this this isn't the best situation. I I should I should protest this person. But then we looked in the in the rule book and then saw that, and Matt was like, "Well, just get up the mountain." And that, that was the trying. I was trying to tune him up and like, listen, you're here for the first time. This is one of the most amazing. It's an incredible thing what you're doing, and not only that, but that you, he built his own bike to do it with. Not, you know, it's not insignificant. Just get up the mountain. Just, just do it. You, you're not going to go set. You're not going to beat the the outright record. So just go and ease into it, right? Yeah. If he was, if if it was Josh Heron, right, and Josh decided that he was going to go up the mountain and he had built up a team to do it, and it was his rookie year, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Who else has done that? Uh, Jeff Tigert, I think he either did it in his rookie year or not long after did he win it. Uh, Jeremy Toye, uh, Carlin Dunn. Right, Carlin built his own bike. Carlin took the demo bike off his showroom (laughs) and beat the factory, the quote unquote factory team. Yeah, right, which I had sworn off never work for again because they were such clusterfuck. And he beat them, and it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen to watch that Spider Grips team get fucking owned by Carlin Dunn and a flat black number five (laughs) Multistrada base without even the electronic suspension. It was a thing of beauty. Right. Yeah. So. For, for me to see all of these people go up, it's like, no, you don't need to be an expert. Everybody always says, oh, you have to you have to know the mountain. It's very nuanced. So you know what? Yeah, for a lot of people, for most people. But if you're already a high-level racer, high-level, mm-hmm. you have that type of mentality like Carlin does. Because Carlin's or, or not just, like he's a super bike racer. He's just extremely well-rounded and talented and has mm-hmm. a very cerebral way of approaching things. And and to prove more to your point, Chris Filmer shows up, rookie yep. year, sets the record. Yep, all of these people, Rennie right? Skazebrook, very high high level test editor for cycle news he shows up he's just right just there. a lick right behind chris yeah. fillmore and we see him again just right behind carlin again so this these year. people all have reserve they yeah. don't want to die 
but they still know how to haul ass and it doesn't really favor any one person, but anybody who's super high level fast is going to be able to go up there and go well. Mm-hmm. And if you were if you were doing that, then you could pick nits and figure out all the little bits and pieces. Until then, it's just trying to make yourself comfortable, like changing gearing and tires, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a challenge to it. And it was really cool to be involved with it. And I'm super stoked that Wooly got up the hill. He made it up in 11 minutes, 40 seconds. He almost beat that person that was on the SXV by like 10 seconds. It was so close. But the top of the hill was super greasy. That's what what Colin was telling me. Yep. I saw the video. You just ran that video today. And watching that video, holy shit. Wow, is it gnarly. So if you can, go to Asphalt and Rubber and find the article where Carlin done. Just find the video. Or just go on YouTube. I think it's... It's a little hard to find because it's on Carlin's personal yeah. YouTube channel. But it was also a it was a Pikes Peak. There's a Pikes film. Peak video as well. The Pikes Peak is from the the front fairing cam. Yeah. But Carlin's video is from the rear seat facing forward, and that really gives you a lot more look of where he's losing it and okay. where things are going I, a little sideways. I watched sideways. the on front cam one. Oh yeah. And I was still like oh, pucker factor ten. Yeah. Especially once you get into the W's, what they call the W's, which are the switchbacks, which are hairpin turns then long straightaway hairpin turn long straightaway right and that was where michael was making up some major time he was excuse me he was super fast in practice on that section like really good and he, once he got up to there it was so loose that he wasn't comfortable with it so carlin's right. you can hear the bike oh dude squirreling around Holy! oh my god yeah i texted him after i just watched your video holy shit right i mean that's an amazing thing so all these things um, make for for a, 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 an interesting dynamic. Then also having like the cars coming up when you're on the different sections, you're at the end of one of the car sections when you're at the top two sections of the hill. So I was very privileged to get to see the uh, the Volkswagen, yeah, which made it up in seven minutes fifty seven seconds, new beating, record, beating the record of Sebastian Loeb that was like 813. Which when that went down, everyone's talking about that record. That's it. Never never broke. Right, for sure. And that was on a Peugeot, basically Ridiculous. a bespoke Peugeot rally car that had been outfitted it, to just be like super aero. It was aero. the Peugeot rally car with the Peugeot Le Mans engine in it. Yeah. And you know, like they're making something, I'm going to get this wrong, but like something stupid like 2,000 horsepower or something because all you ridiculous. all you have to do is go twelve miles. You can have a very brightly lit candle lit at both ends, very brightly go up that hill. You don't need to make it that far, right? That's what makes it such an interesting thing. You can have all the and you need all the power. You don't have a lot of air to push through. That's so you, the big thing. You have to have yeah. all the arrow in the world to get the car to stick on the car side. So you don't have that much air. So you could the wings you'll see on these things are almost comical. It's like a caricature of a wing on the front and the back just to just to force the car down. Right. But there's no air to cool the radiators. So a lot of them have uh, water injection. Now, a lot of people think it's it's a normal thing on a turbo where you have water on an intercooler. Yeah, that you see that a lot. No, this is on the radiators. On the on the water radiator for the engine, there are cooling systems that evaporative cooling systems on top of that because they you're you're going up 4700 feet in elevation at the same time as going as hauling ass. So, you're going uphill, it's putting a lot of motor on the load on the motor. You need as much horsepower as you can possibly get. Period and stop, right? I forget what the number is, but I feel like you have about 
50% of your horsepower at the top of the mountain than when you started with. Maybe not that extreme, Something but like that, it though. wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised I, if it's I, double I know digits. I quickly did the numbers. I think it's 30% less aerodynamic downforce yeah. because of the, the change in yeah. the altitude and yeah. the, the density of air. I mean, it's it, an, there's a lot of things that are going against you in terms of making power sure. and getting arrow and keeping things down and, and the heat and the whole jam, which is why electric works. Right. Right. So there's, there's this exceedingly beautiful car. I'll say it was one of the most beautiful shapes. This side of a Mercedes Group C, C11 car from the late 80s, early 90s, the Sabre Mercedes. Yeah. We did um, a little mini feature on it for the NR Pro people. It was cool. It's oh, cool the car? Thing. Yeah. Just to kind of show it up. Yeah. It's fucking We do amazing. like this um, weekly roundup of call, or not weekly, it's bi weekly. And call it what I'm reading today or yeah. what I read and that, this week. You, you, and that was one of the things we're like, yeah, that's a cool project. Oh, it was so doing. cool to see it and hear it. Yeah. Unfortunately, all the electric vehicles have to have alarms on them, like yeah. meaner, meaner, shit like that, just to make them heard, which is a bit of a bummer. But that car, if it was pointed, which they wouldn't need if they had any sort of, um, you know, live tracking or radio communication. I think it's mostly point. for for spectators. So spectators that, they, that aren't there anymore? Yeah, right. Okay. I mean, yeah. I, can, I can go down a really shitty hole right now. Uh, if no, I really let's want let's to. not go in the yeah. shithole. No need to go in the shithole. I'll just say that was one uh the aspects of being on the hill that you get to enjoy, which is seeing a lot of weird cars. Not that yeah. just that one, but a lot of all over the Muscle place cars. cars yep. and, sure. You know. A lot of it is derivative of the flat track style, dirt track style which on the motorcycle side is very interesting for me to see from 2010 back when it was 75 or 90 bikes, mm -hmm. most of them off-road because it was dirt, mostly. Flat tracky, supermoto. Yeah, all over yeah, the place. That's right? all gone away now. Uh-huh. Now it's all, and there's only 25 of us. So I think that's on purpose. They want to make more time and room for the cars because that's what they do. But from a safety aspect, so this is the good thing that they did. They had them going off at minute intervals in practice, two-minute intervals, single rider. Whereas when I first started, they would let four people, five people go at once, right? So from a safety standpoint, that's ridiculous uh, going up that hill. The road, it's wide enough, but not not for that. That's that's just that in, it entices racing and against each other, which can cause issues, et cetera. So that was good. They did that. And then on the final practice day, they had us staged up as we would on the race day, which was really good. And and instead of it just being a clusterfuck of everybody trying to go at the last minute after their tires are warm, you had to come in, find your grid position, and they ran a, the number one through 20, whatever, and then ran it backwards. So that depending on where you were at in the grid, you had enough time to get your, and you had good runs. So that was really cool that they did that. Um, they they the, the people that are mostly volunteers they they have huge hearts and and want nothing but the best for it. So I don't you know we talk about some of the chicanery that goes on at, in the in the rule book and stuff, and that's happening higher up. But the motorcycle people that are doing the thing, they want to make sure that people are safe as possible without having ambulances at every milepost, right? I mean they I think the ambulances are only at the top and at the bottom, yep. and that's still that way, yep. which is for me. I, I'm not too big of a fan of that, right? I think they should at least have it at Glen Cove. And then for me, I'd also have one at Devil's, Devil's Playground, Playground. Yeah. right? At least, right? Because it's it's all about how quick you can get to the person that just hit an, a, an object. Because that's what you're going to do. You're going to hit a rock. You're going to fall off. It's going to be, that's the deal, right? So First two minutes in a traumatic yeah. injury are critical. Sure. And there's nothing that can get up there. Like, can you imagine a, an ambulance that's that VW? It's still eight minutes to the top from that with that thing. Yeah. There's no there's no amount of speed. You can't put like the person that had the bike at 
uh, Isle of Man with this with oh, the, the traveling marshal, right? Yeah, you're, you're not. It's, it's still it's well, too big. It's interesting because every time I've been to Pikes Peak, it was immediately after the TT, and it's interesting. And I'm I'm sure I've talked about this on the show before, but it's it's interesting for me to see that at the TT they have line of sight from Marshalling Station to Marshalling Station almost across the entire. 37 mile course that's so gnarly and it and and i haven't been to pike speak in a couple years maybe things have changed but when i was there you really only had marshals in about four or five places and if people crashed in between those places i mean there was literally miles of road that they could be at you could so it would fall off and then nobody would know where you were would really know because there's transponder issues as well yeah so people don't really know until like the kind of the race is done and they're like oh you haven't seen number 32 well, last saw him at uh, Devil's Playground. Okay, well, now there's three miles of course or two miles of course Get left the chopper. that you have no idea where he is or, or she is. And it's going to take you that much longer to find them. And then you get the, the medical aid next to them. And it's like, by that point, it's like, man, it's probably been 45 minutes. And that's always been my big safety issue because there's no sort of transponder uh, like like GPS GPS enabled yeah transponder. There's yeah. no sort of line of sight. There's not enough marshals on the course, and that was a lot. That was part of the issue with the spectators because there's just not enough people managing the spectators. So pe- spectators were crossing yeah now the live road. They only all have the certain time. areas where they can go, yeah. and it's properly fenced off. Yeah, so that was another thing they did pretty they corralled, well. Yeah, they did. They corralled literally. There's like corrals, right? And I so. think that's kind of smart. I think it kind of ruins the campy funness of Pike Speak, but it's also kind of smart because I remember as a photographer. You know, setting up in some pretty sketchy spots and being like, okay, something goes down. What am I doing? I'm going to dive here. I'm going to run there. I got this tree next to me. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, that's my escape. Yeah. And I remember like being in the lower section and kind of exposed. And I was like, all right, this one's kind of a risk. Yeah. Uh, I got to think about this. I got to be really well aware. And this is, I'm in a bad spot. This is, it's going to be a good photo, but this is, this yeah, is a sure. risky photo. Yeah. I'm taking my life in my own hands there. Yeah. And as I'm thinking about that, I watched this like couple with their like three kids throw down a picnic, a picnic blanket and their chairs and their basket and, a and their zone. kids. And they're like right on the edge of the road, right in front of me. And I'm going like, first of all, guys, you're right in my shot. Second of all, Oh, uh, this is a really easy spot for something to go really bad. Yeah. You guys are sitting down making camp in one of the most dangerous spots on the track. What are you thinking? Get your kids out of here. Yeah. Like, think about it for two seconds. No, they get don't. Get your though. cures light and get the fuck yeah, out of here. They don't. And that's why that woman had her arm ripped off or right. broken. And then there was a kid that got hurt as well. There's been another. It's, that's why they had this. They right. had, and they've done, I think they've done their due diligence getting that sorted. So I think that's, that's smart. That's That needed to happen. I think a lot of people were really poopy about it, but looking at what was happening and what was being allowed, you're like, no, that's got to stop. Altitude, but, alcohol. And then they're in the sun all me? day. Yeah, I right? mean, all, day. On, all the things. Right? You start, you have to go up at 2.30 in the morning, that morning, right? right? You have to. They're, that's it. That's the only, because they'll shut it off after a bit. Oh, man, it is such a brutal thing. And then the weather, you know, the weather came in. Luckily, all the bikes got up. Even though it was really greasy oh, at the yeah. top, it was it was dry. It was dry. I it was, was talking sunny. to Carlin, and he's like, it's snowing now. Uh-huh. It was, it hailed. And it hailed up there like the 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 small hail that kind of accumulates and looks like snow. It hailed in the pits, full on golf balls. And it was a, 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 I haven't been in that since I lived in central Texas 20 years ago. So it was really interesting to be in a situation where it got so dark that everybody was like, uh oh. 
And then a minute later, whack, 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 whack. And all the vehicles are just getting fucking pummeled. It was really gnarly. So I'm cussing a lot on the show. I apologize to all the people that are uh, soft eared. Mama Beak, plug your ears. <laughs> but anyway, good, good, good for us to go through that. And then I got to see, you know, uh, Pat Travis Pastrana go up in a Porsche and he was really obviously stoked. So it was good to see somebody of a high level there. Reese Millen in a Bentley SUV thing. Uh, there were two Audi Pikes Peak level group B rally cars, which were like the ultimate stoke for me with these gigantic wings and just the front wing and the rear wing and the, the, the five cylinder engine with the Lopi cam unreal good stuff uh, all of it was awesome the sound of that electric car when it would take off was fucking unreal everything about it was good the pit equipment that the the vw team had oh, was yeah. unreal like the the sheer amount of stuff that they had going out there was great so uh ducati did a pretty good job of basically supporting all the motorcyclists we had uh tents and pit spaces because of them that's so i have to say good good on them for having supported the race in such a high level and then getting uh carlin up the hill and then uh, cody vasholtz whose father is a well-known car racer clint vasholtz Uh, so he was part of that again you would just have to assume that somebody like that's in it because that's just part of the you know good old boy network right otherwise the ducati would i would assume that they would try and choose somebody that's more road racy that as obvious that has done well uh over the past 10 years but in this case it makes sense for them to choose somebody that's kind of a legacy person it's part of the part of the uh the deal there you know so that was cool yeah uh, rennie heartbreaking oh my god heartbreaking oh my god it was like half a second or less not even well right? it was seven tenths of a second but i was i was talking I, I got just like a really short text message, text message from Rennie, and it was just fucking heartbroken. And I was like, "Yeah," because I, I I I've been talking to him for like the last year about this. Like he's been training; that's where his mind he, is. He was thin. He's been trying yeah. to, you know, he had different rides, and his ride fell through, and he had to hop back on his yeah. KTM when he was getting that already, and he's getting help from KTM USA. And he's going yep. out doing track days, and he's tire testing, and he's doing all the things, and he's. He's got the eye of the tiger. He's like, okay, Fillmore's in the middleweight class. You should have seen him. He was so I'm, on he's it. He's so hungry for it. He was hauling ass in the practices. Oh, and then just by that, like, I can just, it's going to take him like a year to get over it. Dude, it's he gonna got take him like a at the line year. by Carlin on a wildebeest. I mean, those multistratas are just stupid heavy, ridiculous for what they're doing, right? Ridiculous. You watch it in the video. Yeah, a lot of that is it's slick. A lot of it's because that bike is just a, pile of crap for that right it's not it should he shouldn't go up as fast as he does when you think about that relative to that ktm right imagine if carlin would have been on a a bike as focused and sharp imagine if he could get out on a like a a, v4 street fighter Fighter, maybe a couple years right that would be audio year or two that would be the thing that would be the ultimate because the ktm is the ultimate yeah i don't know why nobody's up there on an aprilia v4 i don't Botswana. That would because you have to have uh, so if everybody bars. understands it has yeah. to have handlebars. Yeah. Even the electric bikes had triple clamps made by Harris that had handlebar mounts that basically put the handlebar and they ran them as clubland style like upside down <laughs> because they had to have handlebars. Right? It's such a bizarre thing, but it makes sense and I like it and I think that's the way it should be. Like I like the idea. Okay, keep it at handlebars. Yeah, they're still going to haul ass, but at least it'll be a, a, an aesthetic that works out for that mountain and it kind of limits to the bike. So. Rennie with that bike was like, obviously gelling. It's just that Carlin is that fucking good, right? 
and comfortable on a bucking wildebeest of a motorcycle that's way too heavy doing the thing, right? Yeah. That That's not a record-setting machine, but it's a winning machine, which I think is of note. Uh, the thing, that again, that started all this was talking about the 790 Duke. That's kind yeah. of what was like the, yeah. oh my God, it was everything and more than I, I thought in, in person. So there's only a couple of these in the nation. Right. They're not supposed to come out until later this year. The, uh, most of the dealers are telling me November because I'm on it because number one, I wanted to talk about it because it's so rad. Number two, because if you think about that AMA twins, twins class, class, which they're allowed to race, it's in. already it's already legal for. And that thing should wipe the asses of all the other bikes in that class because it's so focused and bitching, even naked. Like, I don't even think you'd have to put a fairing on it. It's so badass. And watching Chris Fillmore do what he did. So they, the Carlin and Rennie got up in nine minutes, 59 seconds. Right. And they're on fire breathing, 1200 plus CC, almost both of them are 1300 CCs basically. Close to it. Right. Yeah. Ish. And there's Chris on a 790 Duke and he made it up in 10 minutes, four seconds. So that should give you an idea of number one, how slick the track is. Number two, how good Chris Fillmore is. Yeah. Right. And number three, how good that bike is, right, in general. So looking at the bike, and so the the technicians who were there are both rad dudes. One was an Irish guy, I can't remember his name. One was an Austrian guy named Uli. I don't know why I remember that, but they were, the, they were helping out those two riders. And there was one other person there. And it was obviously, yes, a factory effort, kind of, but not. Yeah, I mean, it's it's out of a, out of a back of a box fan, right? So it was cool to get to meet these people. You end up being fast friends with everybody on the mountain. Generally, there's a couple of assholes that just get all asked up about pit space, and that you it's easy to get aggro in that in that You're way. Just scraggle pusses. They really are, just a right? Couple of scraggle there's curmudgeony people, but the KTM dudes were really rad. And when I would go up and ask questions, they, they were just totally cool with answering them. So I thought that was really nice. The the bike that he rode had all stuff that you can buy out of the catalog or will be able to buy out of the catalog, right? Mm -hmm. So the rear sets and the exhaust system, which was sublime, all the stuff. At one point, I look over at the rear sets and I'm like, that that shift, that shifter doesn't have a quick shifter on it, like on the on the rod that, that actuates the shift mechanism. I'm like. That's really strange. You would think with a bike like that, with Chris riding, it was, I'm pretty sure when I heard him, he was, you know, there was some pop shifts there so for uh, uh, a kill shifter. And I look really close and I notice on the shift shaft itself, which is the rod, what, what the arm operates, there's this super trick Hall effect sensor, which is basically a, let's call it a magnet triggered for for all intents and purposes a, a magnet triggered sensor and it goes both ways and then i you know i'm looking because the first thing i noticed was the throttle body which is an electronic throttle body uh, you can recognize just from okay that that is fly by wire so you have to have that for blip throttle and i was like ooh, if it has that and i look down at the shifter i'm like there's no shifter then i see this switch and i'm like oh and i asked the guy like is that how that bike's gonna come he's like we're not sure if it's gonna ship like that yet but that's what you're gonna be able to get so this drippingly trick light small tight right parallel twin you you know i'm not a big fan of them but this bike who cares it's so compact it's like what the a48 street fighter should have been on the ducati side just tight right and light um so i'm i i would i will be like all right race the ninja 250 sell the ninja 250 use that to go buy uh the ktm and then figure out a way to go racing on that 
I looked at the Omer rules already. I'm one step ahead of you. Yeah. Doesn't. No. Not good news for you on that. No, I would. I I wouldn't care, though. That's all I would do is maybe go race whatever in the the Omer class. You're going to end up in 600 super sport. Yeah, that would be fine. You know, I'd do whatever. And if I could put a fairing on it, maybe I'd do it there. I don't know. Whatever. But if I could go, you know, bucket list a couple tracks over the next couple of years on that bike in the AMA or sorry, Moto America, that's what I would want to do. Oh my gosh. And now with my newfound Pirelli support. No, yeah. damn it. There, it's a spec dumb up. <laughs> God damn it. So anyway, so I'll have to figure out like how I can get that. Yeah, done. You're talking about that 790. I come back to the Kramer. Like I really hope the Kramer guys, if they have the, the, the means they do a follow-up model with the 790 and say, okay, we've got our single. Makes sense. We got our, our, here's a bespoke road racer. Yeah. And if you could still keep it that sub 300, oh. that would, that would be the thing. I'm like, I got a little bit more power now. Yeah. Now you're really going to go embarrass some R6s. Easily. Yeah. Yeah. 890 twin or seven, 790 twin. 790 twin. That was another thing about the race. like 110 on pump gas at the crank. Is it? I think I think that's the what they're quoting the figure. Yeah. Which is great. 110-ish, 108, that's, something like dude, that. That's, that's my sweet spot. I think about all the bikes that I have that I like and I enjoy. Yeah. The only bike that I really loved the over overboard power was the 1098 Street Fighter, right? Corrupt, absolute power corrupted, absolutely, but... Well, I'll do you one better than that, sir. So, so while you were at Pike's Peak, I was at Laguna Seca. I don't want to get into the World Superbike Weekend because we're we're, we're already. already long. Yeah, but uh, Superbike Weekend, everything went well. It was really cool to see uh, Moto America and yep. World Superbike on the same track at the same time, running pretty similar times. Yeah, pretty close. It was really good. The um, levels high in Moto America finally. Again. Yeah, the levels high. There's some good racing. Um, story that I'm going to publish tomorrow, so I'll tell it to you today. A lot of talk that Cameron Bobier will be going to the World Superbike Pack. Really? Yes. Because I had heard so many times that he's just happy and where he's at, right? No, it seems like he will definitely be uh, headed that way. Um, because Yamaha or because, because Yamaha? Okay, because Yamaha is obviously upping their game with the Pata team and they've done yes. really well. I don't right? think he's in the Pata team. I think he'll be in the GTR satellite team. Whichever, though. But, but with the way the rules are set up, that's going to be a very similar spec bike to what the factory guys oh. are racing. And you may even have a little factory love. So that well, hopefully I was, to be honest with you after this weekend, I was hoping Josh Heron would get some. Well, like, there's a lot of talk of that too. So there's a lot of talk that Jake Gagne is on his way out. Although he posted some impressive results this he weekend. Did. Ninth so, and 10th. That's ninth pretty damn good. Is best but results. it's a home track. But yeah, it's a home track, but and a, and a track that doesn't really favor high horsepower. Right. Yeah, I think, but We'll see. I don't think Honda's super stoked on what they've gotten out of him. I know American Honda's kind of helping foot that bill, so maybe money talks. Yeah. But I, yeah, I think a lot of people were talking about Josh Heron as like, this is a world superbike audition. He'd be perfect. He'd be perfect. He did quite, he acquitted himself quite well. I think, I think you could say he made an argument for him moving into that paddock and i think he made some arguments on why he's not going to be moving into that paddock because of his uh, actions just because of his actions and like at the end of the day the results really weren't there he would run at the top for a little while but by the time the sessions were over his time had dropped it was the same in the race he was doing really well in the beginning of the race but wasn't there at the end because he wasn't managing the tires so it's like well is he really a fourth or fifth place rider if he's not managing the tires and he's willing to chew up tires. Well, and then, if, he's, if he's used to Dunlops and he's trying to ride Pirelli style and he can't because he hasn't done it yet. Yeah. He just needs it. And the team doesn't quite yet know how to set him up. I mean, attack is obviously very good. Yes. They got him on pole and get him in this points race for sure. Right. So they're high level. But how much can you ask of a team? It's not only the rider that has to deal with 
all those races and all those practices and all the tire swaps and all that shit, you're asking a lot of the team too. So they're spent. There's not that much more extra to try and extract as much uh, as that right. you have to to get the uh, Josh going. Now, what I could see, which would be very interesting, is somebody saying, hey, attack. Why don't you come to World Superbike? Yes. That would make sense. And to have an American team inside yep. World Superbike Paddock. Now First you time the- since freaking Rob Muzzy. Or, well, EBR, or- but yeah. EBR? What EBR is an old superbike. What's that? EBR? Yeah. Um, Was it like a Moto2 team? I just, sometimes, you know, I just... I don't know. I, just, I don't remember anything you're talking about. So, oh, sorry, sorry. They weren't an American team. You're right. They're an American team. <laughs> no. Um, but no, I think I think it makes a lot of sense for attack racing to to come in. And that sets up an American team inside World Superbike where American talent can come yeah. through. Now you've really created cool. this channel for sure. Moto America to Superbike. And that's something we were talking about. I was out to dinner with with some people. Uh, on one of the nights and we're saying you know what we really need one we need we need all the manufacturers to get on board with world superbike because having kawasaki is doing the lion's share of the work ducati's coming in trying to make the best out of the v-twin situation yamaha is kind of there but not really and then you have like a really big drop off like aprilia is basically not there yeah. suzuki's not there at all um it, it's it's just tough you know, BMW is doing this weird little nebulous support thing. And, you know, you really need to have four or five committed factories. Honda needs to get their act together and they need to get in there. There's a lot going on, but it also helps to have, um, you know, a channel for those teams and to be able to say like, okay, like this is how we need to make sure that Moto America is seen as a place where you can go. You can become a yeah. champion and then move on to somewhere just, else. Just like British Superbike. Right. 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 You need we need to have that jump from Moto America to World Superbike. And we also need to have that jump from World Superbike to MotoGP. I think it was a huge mistake for Dorna not to pay the wage for Jonathan Ray to go into MotoGP yeah, sure. Moto GP team. Because someone that is dominating the World Superbike class yeah. should have a pathway into a high level GP team. For sure. And that just doesn't exist. <clears throat> Excuse me. That just doesn't exist because no one in the GP paddock is willing to take that risk because they have their blinders on and they're only willing to look at Moto2, Moto3, Spanish series. And if you listen done. to the last Paddock Pass podcast, they they go into that a yes. little bit, right? They, they yes. detail that. And it's like, yeah, it sucks that it's still like that, but it's just such an insular thing, right? Oh, we'll see. Um, I got a shout out. The person that was responsible, not solely, but mostly for the Josh's deal, uh, was a friend of ours. You don't know him well yet, but Ara, and yes. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna screw up his name because I haven't said it in a long time. Akarajian. Akarajian? He was riding with me on Monday. Was he really good? I'm so stoked that you were out there with him. So Ara is an old friend of mine from LA. I used to work on his bikes back in 2003 or four um, when he was just kind of a young pup, just getting into uh, sport bikes at the time. And now he's a full-on lawyer and uh, is two-wheel legal in the LA area. So if you're in the LA area and you need legal representation in a moto bend uh, you're gonna have to look up two-wheel legal he's a good dude so he put his name on the side of josh's bike and i thought that was super rad i had no idea until i saw it like happening i was like oh my god ara stepped up big time to help him out i don't know if he could do world superbike with that but you know yeah it is what it is so that's cool that's good that you were able to ride when you got to meet him first face to face we've met a couple times but yeah we right got on. we got uh i don't think we we're on the 
track at the same time. So, so this is actually where I wanted to go with the stories. So we finished up World Superbike Weekend. Good racing, good times, fun by fun had by all. I stayed on Monday to ride the track with the Pirelli Track Day. That yeah. they're, they're kind of making a, uh, a thing out of. It's actually kind of yeah. turning into like this cool industry invite-only yeah. track sure. day. Uh, last year, I pitted with Keanu Reeves. He stole my uh, extension cable. Bastard. Didn't show up this year. Whoa. Whoa. Uh, so, Keanu, you still owe me uh, a power cable. <laughs> I, I I think it's two power cables at this point yeah. <laughs> in time with the interest. But, um, yeah, it's cool. It's it's journalists. It's VIPs like that. It's social media people. It's a lot of dealers. I saw some influencers, yeah. A lot of influencers. I like, I like a lot of those influencers that are there. We had a good time. Um, and then I was there mostly on the Kramer. I spent almost all my sessions on the Kramer. We got socked in with fog in the morning and it really didn't get on the track until after lunch. Yeah. Uh, Laguna Seca was nice enough to let us run an hour later. We ran until six. Nice. So we still got a full day in. I got about two hours of track time in. Bitching. Um, so I had a good time on the Kramer, but what was really cool is BMW had the HP four race out there and Ara was out there with them. Cause they were kind of doing like their own little thing, which was really weird for me. I couldn't quite get my head around it, but they, Preface it, sales for the HP4 race in the US have been dismal. The last I saw, and this is about a month or two old information, they'd sold 14 of them. So maybe they've sold 20 by now. Yeah. I don't know. Sure. But compare super, that to like a super legera where probably compare that sold to out. the 150, 160 super legeras that have been sold in the US, 10 times more successful. So there's clearly something going on in BMW Motorrad USA that isn't quite switched on to being able to sell that bike and, and i was talking to someone about it and you know they brought up the point where like well look at what the s1000 rr is pitched to and the kind of customer that picks that bike up you know and that was a, a european bike that went after japanese bike owners they're like okay we're going to go after yeah. you with price point it's in line four we're going to come at you with horsepower electronics and weight it hits all the things on the on the spec sheet that you want and it sold like hotcakes and oh by the way we're going to do that super financing thing where you basically yeah. don't pay anything for your bike sold like hotcakes so that group and now you're going to turn around and be like okay here's the bespoke custom carbon fiber uber light 212 horsepower eighty thousand dollar track bike you know completely different demographic that you're selling sure. to and maybe that's not a plan that had legs anyway so they're <laughs> doing this they're doing the sales thing where they're down the track with us getting people like Ara to hop on the bike, uh. do some laps and be like, hey, that was cool, right? You want to mm -hmm. go do that? Yeah. So they finally, at the end of the day, let some journalists on the bike. And I wasn't at the press launch for this in Spain and they did a thing in Coda and um, I haven't had a chance to really get on this bike before. And they were like, okay, we're going to let you do two laps on it. But first, you need to go out on a BMW S1000RR so we can yeah. check you out. Make sure you're ah. you're good to go. And I'm like, all right, whatever I got to do. I just want to, I just want to go do the thing. They're like, well, you probably can't GP shift, so we're gonna have to find a, a standard shift around here for it. I'm like, no, I can do both. I'm, I'm ambidextrous. I've been doing G, GP shift all day. Oh, okay, cool. So we go out there, and the guy's like, all right, you know, screw this. Like, we're gonna do an in lap. We're gonna do an out lap. And then we're gonna come back in, and then we're gonna get you on the end before. I'm like, okay, I like where you're. I like the cut of yeah. your jib shirt. Let's, let's get going here. All right. Yeah. That turns into being, we're just going to do a lap. We didn't even do a full lap. We go out. 
Yeah. Circle yeah. light, come yeah. right back in. Don't even go cross right. sure. past a start finish. Hop on the HP4. And at this point, there's literally like minutes left in the day. Yeah. And so they, they literally like punch in some settings, like traction level four. I mean, I don't even know what they're putting in. Like it's it's just like, all right, it's gonna kinda you're gonna have like traction control, you're not gonna have full power in first gear and second gear. Yeah, and yeah, sure. And I'm like, I'm like, uh, is there an IMU? Is there coordinate ABS? What do we got on here? No, no, that. Okay, is this what shift is this? It's standard shift. And they're like, okay, we're going. And I didn't get really any sort of briefing on the bike whatsoever. I don't even like it's a full 2D race dash. But you'd ridden the uh the standard equivalent. I've standard ridden the standard equivalent. I've been and a lot we, of we spent a lot of time on it last year, I mean, so you know it pretty well. I know this bike fairly well, but this is completely different. Yeah, sure. It's completely Isn't different. it like a hundred pounds lighter? Uh no, but it's pretty light. Yeah. I mean it's uh, what do I let me look at my notes here? Dun 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 dun, dun. It's four hundred and fifty nine pounds. So pretty close. Eighty pounds lighter. Eighty pounds. That's pretty impressive. Okay. With a well, the base model has a fifty two percent front wheel bias by the way oh yeah nice yeah like that uh-huh shred on my fingertips yeah, sure. that's technology mm-hmm. um it's quoted at 212 horsepower it feels like way more though it's yeah. it hits like a freight train well it's so the, the lightweight has a lot to do with that yeah and they're like okay the brakes like literally one finger brakes which yes and no i, I still do i have a two yeah, finger sure. technique but the brakes are definitely really really good we end up doing about they're like okay you're gonna go out and do two laps on the hp4 race we ended up doing like five or six, maybe seven laps. With who was there? Somebody with you? Yeah, his name is Gunther Friedrich Ludwig. Nate Kern. Oh, Nate Kern, sure, yeah. You know Nate Kern? I don't know him, but he is a storied BMW. He's the one that's taking that bike around, right? He was the one that got his freaking shit stolen, including I think that bike. Oh, is that him? In like Amarillo, Texas or North Texas somewhere and got it back. It's a really interesting story. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He was he was one of the ones that was racing the cup bikes, the boxer the cup boxers, bikes. Yeah. And was known for like HP2s or being, being, no. well, whatever it was that he was racing. He was really giving the beans to those things and making them work when a lot of people weren't. So yeah, that's cool. I didn't really know him from Adam. I kind of recognized him from a couple marketing sure. videos. Yeah. But he, I mean, you could tell he's a f- super fast dude. Sure. And so he he leads us out for a couple laps and he kind of gives me the motion. I get popped by the meatball, you know, sound thing again. And we just like kept on going. We're like, oh, screw nice. you. We're still yeah, going. Last session. Yeah. What are you going to do? Come, come. Come and get me. Come and get me. Yeah. Come find me in the pit. Fuck that. Yeah. Um. And then we do a couple laps and he gives me the single to come in front of him and I, you know, I'm getting on it. We're going. And then, um, I do a couple laps and I have to go cause I have a, a Krokovich full system on. He's got a stock BMW S1000R so he can go through the meter. No yeah. issue. And you I have can't to back off. So we kind of, you had talked about that beforehand. Nope. They didn't talk to, literally like the entire briefing I got Quentin was okay. So, um, standard shift. I did these settings. It should be more or less good to go. And you're on standard, and um, yeah, just you know, yeah, follow me. Throttles out. over there. Go. Throttles over here. Two finger brake. Well, yeah. one finger brake. Yeah. And I go, is there an IMU? Is it coronary ABS? He's like, no, this is a full race bike. I'm like, okay, cool. And we go. That was my briefing. Okay, sure enough. So you back um, off. So so I roll I roll off to go through the sound meter, and he comes by, and we get thumbs up right on, and then we kind of come up on this group of Ducatis, and. I think we are. I think Nate and I are kindred spirits. Yeah, and he's it's like, time to skype. He's like, we're supposed him. to be going in, and we come, we kind of catch them uh, at the top of the corkscrew and coming down. And they're going pretty good, and we're kind of getting the traffic as we do like a couple more laps. And he's like, we get back into the pace. He's like, 
Yeah, I definitely had to show those Ducatis. What's up? I'm like, good. Yeah, because we ended up doing some laps. We were going through. That was the thing. Like, I didn't get enough laps to be able to sit here and tell you, Quentin, this bike's the fucking machine. You got to go. It's yeah, worth yeah, every sure, dollar. Sure. I think this does this. Yeah, and this yeah, is yeah, rad. Yeah, sure. And I changed these settings and it was like a beast. And mm-hmm. da, 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 da. you just can't do it. Like the first two, three laps, I'm like reprogramming my brain from speed. low speed Kramer to Superbike again. Yeah. And just trying to get, you know, comfortable on the bike. Um, I will say it does hit on the front straight. Like I, I definitely brought that front wheel up like I wasn't even trying. And then the electronics didn't kick in like I was expecting them to. And then I had to yeah, put it back down because I had no idea. That was when I really realized I was like, I have no idea where I am electronically right now. This thing is raw. It's raw. And, and it's just and it just revs and it just goes and it makes good power. But the real fun part was we started getting into some traffic, and that's when we were kind of catching in those Ducatis. And you're, we were, they were just running whatever group at that point. And I think we were like in the B or C group, and I don't really know what was differentiating it because it wasn't necessarily skill level. But we, these were slower riders we were coming on. So now we're doing like the chicane through the turns and like just mixing up through these guys, and it was so kind of cool to see the response of the chassis as you're having to like make constant line corrections because you know, I think through the traffic because people okay. are just stuffing you and doing stupid things and and I remember coming into the final turn which is the total bus stop and like there's just this pack of them and I'm just like fuck this and I'm like I'm getting around you guys now get four wide I basically am at the corner I'm just basically parking it putting it on the side stand and rolling around the turn well, that there kick is no stands side. up. There is right? no kickstand uh-huh. though. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna get ahead of you on that uh-huh. joke. Look what I did there. Uh-huh. Well, now you have to rethink your strategy. Uh-huh. I thought you were, you thought I was t-balling you up for uh-huh. this, no sir. Uh-huh. And you know, stuff it out there. And I can only imagine, you know, Nate behind me going like, "That's yeah. eighty thousand dollars a bike." But it was cool. It was really cool to uh, just scalpel your way through and then just whack that power and know that no one's gonna touch you on it true super bike yeah awesome it's it's a race bike it is a total race bike you put go turnkey race bike does it have any of the electronic suspension shit no no yeah no it's got the fgr olin's force so it's it's got the nitrogen canisters in the bottom yeah sure yep that's the one so i made fun of it a few when we were talking about dion campbell the fast afm kid beating one of those and another bmw at uh button willow on a 600 for the for the for the pacific raceway or Grand oh yeah pacific whatever it is formula pacific so fair enough i know i now understand what you're talking about because i'd seen the picture with all those trick forks it's like oh my god those things are gnarly well whoever lost that race it was not because of the bike yeah i can tell you that I, I i can't sit here and give like a true blue review but um it's good enough there's nothing i found lacking it would be interesting. The back to back with that and the Super Legera would be the thing, right? That'd be the thing. Um, BMW. Or, I don't know if they'll ever let that happen, but sure. You'd have to find somebody that would be willing to let you do it. Somebody like Two Wheel Legal. <laughs> he was bought one <laughs> and has a Super Legera because I think he has one as well. Yeah. Right? So the real deal would be when they release a V4 Super Legera. Uh, getting you know doing would that. No, they're not going to do. I doubt they're going to do that this year. Nah, this year will be the no year they're going to do the R next year, and then next year and they'll do the Superlegera, and then we may or may not see a Street Fighter that year. I don't know. I haven't talked to Claudio in a while. Yeah. Maybe maybe this summer. I I'm saying they're hmm, just just knowing what's going on. I, my my guess is the Street Fighter might come beforehand. I think I think they're going to have to make something just because otherwise there's some staleness going on that that. 
Like that bike's still, I'm sure it's selling okay, but it's probably not as good as they want, judging by what I'm Which the, bike? The V4. Oh, I think a bike's selling, selling well. I'm sure it's selling okay, but I bet <clears> it's not at the, because it's still 1,000cc bike. Like right now, big super bikes are not the, you know, it'd be interesting to see how that's going. But I don't get the vibe that it's like blow it out of the park, badass. I can tell you, being at the track day, a lot of people wanted to get on that V4. Yeah. They want to get on it, but did they? Are, are there buyers? That, that's the question. Oh, uh, that's the hard part. You know, S models twenty seven four, I believe. Yeah, I want to get on one. Do I want to buy one? Not even close, right? And there's a lot of people like me that are like, "Oh, that's really cool, boy. That's really neat. I'd love to ride it, but do I want it? Not really." I, I am. I've said it before. I'll say it again. If you want to ask me what the best superbike on the market is, it's a Panigale V four S. If you ask me which bike I'm going to go buy with my money, it's an RSV four RR. Yeah, I'm going to put wheels on it. Done and done. And buy a bunch of tires and a bunch of track yep. days done and, and done. still have money left over. Yep. Done go and buy done. all the Mountain Dew. Yeah, we've said that. That's, Absolutely. That's the jam. That's the mark. So. Yeah, it'd be the same for me, except for I'd probably buy Dickel Rye and Ginger Ale. Yeah. I like all whiskey gingers instead of the Mountain Dew. That's going to be my poison. Yeah. Well, you know, each, each their own. Yeah, sure. Well, a bunch of these bikes didn't have kickstands that we were just talking about. V4 does. Very, it's pretty. It's a really good looking kickstand. Very few kickstands in this episode, Quentin. <laughs> very few. This is, I think, quick kickstand to quickstand ratio. <laughs> very low. All right. Well, um, I did get, and I didn't get his name. He came up to me. I'm sitting in the back of the truck at Pike's Peak, and it was like almost done with the day, probably about 15 minutes from everybody coming down the hill and leaving. And the dude says, hey, kickstands up. And I'm like, God damn it, right? <laughs> you know what? You know what's even worse than that, though? Is going around Laguna Seca the whole weekend and everyone be like, oh, you're that two enthusiast guy. Where's Quentin? Oh, sorry. And I'm, I'm like, you know, there's two of us, right? Yeah. There's two of us the on the show. About the I fucking edit the whole thing. He doesn't even listen it's to the like, show. There's the hippie. He's like barely on it. The, hair, the hippie's not even here. I'm the thing. Oh, man. Sorry. I'm You're so like, sorry. I feel I, bad. You were way more popular than I am, no. Team Quentin. No. With team the, we Quentin were popular as a team. Wow. I'm sure that's exactly what Michael Jordan said to the rest of the Chicago Bulls. <laughs> Scotty, no. You and Pippen and I, we're, we're a team. We're doing it together. LeBron the, and who? who? Who's wearing the shoes? Who who has the shoes? Not, yeah. I certainly don't have any Pippins on. That's yeah. for sure. <laughs> you, I am the Danny Pedrosa to your Mark Marquez. <laughs> Whatever. All right. Kickstands up. Good talk. See you out there. All right. I'm ready when you are. I'm ready to go. You're ready to go. I'm ready to go. Coda Kitty, you ready to go? All right. <laughs>